Okay. All right. Good to see you. Hey, Wesley. How are you, brother? Wesley, I am trying to get something uh, squared away in my calendar, but uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at how to pull that off. Okay. So I hope you can. Uh, I hope you can bear with me for a little bit while I'm juggling. Hey, Brian. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Hi, David. Hi there. Trying Shabbat to catch you up, Doctor P. <laughs> hey, Shabbat Shalom. Hey, I'm glad to see you got a little bit. You got a little bit of going there. There. That's there you go. There yes. Yeah. Two two years. Are, are you keeping the piano tune there? That's the key question. Lovely. Excellent. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, look. Don't expect Rachmaninoff the next time I show up. No, won't happen. But I think with 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 your touch, you've inspired me. Ah, outstanding. That's great. There you go, then. There you go. That's good. You know, I'll tell you, you know, I, I got to tell you one thing I've learned about at my age. I'm going to play the music I want to play. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, James. Hi, Mary Isabel. Good to see you. Shabbat yeah, Shalom, here. Dr. P. We got to remove the tape from the camera. Oh, okay. All right. All right. You have to keep got an allergy to the camera. I think that's what the deal is. There's an allergy there. No, no, no. Yeah, it's just when we're on the internet, God. we don't want people to, to see what we're doing. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, all right. Okay. All right. Okay. We'll keep, it, we'll keep a secret and undisclosed location. Hi, Jeanette. Yes. <laughs> hi, hi, Eileen. Good to see you. All right. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Hey, there we go. She's, bringing in, she's entering with song, is what she's doing. She's entering into Shabbat with song. Hallelujah. We have the Gabriella. the great unveiling. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's such it's such a wonderful and fantastic thing to gather together on Shabbat. Hey, Brad, how are you doing, brother? Good, Steve. How are you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing all right. Doing all right. We had, such, we had a got great a lot of snow up there. Got a lot of snow. Uh, up there. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, it snowed heavy in uh, December. We had about 48 inches in a week. Oh my! And wow. so, so the snowplow guys were like, <laughs> you know, and everybody's rig was breaking down, and you know, I even have this little quad snowplow, you know, this little Yamaha. So I got out there, but you know, when you got when you have all of a sudden you've got you know thirty inches standing of fresh snow, and my little quads out there going, yeah. So anyway, it overheated, but uh, my neighbor came down. He had his own quad. And he came down and he says, well, let me help you uh, do a little plowing. And so he'd help a little bit. We had to go get my next door neighbor out. He was really buried. And uh, ultimately, wow. uh, we had to bring in the professionals. And the professionals showed up. And it got to a point where finally I just told the guy, I said, look, this is not going to cut it. We've got snow mountains all over here. We can't get out of our driveway and on and on. It's okay. I'll take care of it. So he shows up with a front end loader. Right. He shows up with the front end loader. I'll get this stuff moved now. And so he shows up with the front end loader and moves it. But of course, you know, I have I have this um, I've got a generator shed in case we lose power. Because, you know, during that during that storm week, we had 75 mile an hour winds. Right. And if we lose power, I want to have a generator to keep my freezer where, where all my frozen salmon is. And uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> what was the result of the 75 mile an hour winds? Six foot packed hard as concrete snowdrift in front of the door of my generator shed. Even if I wanted to get to it, I couldn't get to it. And uh, so ultimately, I had to take a literally a fire axe 
to chop my way through the snowbank so I could get to my to the door of my generator shed. Just it, you know, it's just a uh, sure see you out there with an axe cut his way. Can't see it, can you? Dr. P, you have to I have a tractor and a snowblower. You need a snowblower. Hey John, John Kalb, you're dead on it, brother. It's a snowblower, not a plow. Right. Because the snowblower, what the snowblower does, instead of when you plow, you just plow up big piles of snow. But when yep. you snow blow, you can actually cut the thing out and you and you blow it out and it disperses more evenly and it's much nicer and it's just much better. No, nope. uh, I've got a half mile long driveway and I have to do that. I don't have room to push, so I blow it out. That's what I had to do yesterday, like three times this week. I had to blow out. Yeah, is that right? Now, John, when you do that, let me ask you a question. When you do that, are are you um? You, you go the full width of the road, because I know a lot of guys, they just, they do a snowblower. It's like the width of the vehicle. That's it. That's what you get. Well, mine's mine's eight feet wide. So I actually make two passes up and down my driveway. So yeah. it's 16 feet wide when I'm, for the most part, when I'm. Yeah, done. there you go. But it's gone. You don't get the drifting that you do if you push up a pile, like you say. There you go. Boom. There it is. See that? See, we've just got an inside tip as to how you do it. Now, next next winter, I'm going to be completely free of any problems with snow and ice. It's just right, like it. except for fixing. <laughs> uh, okay. uh, it's never a dull moment. Okay, well, anyway, guys. Next year, just... next year in Central Florida, I'll know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm with you, James. I'm with yeah, you, yeah, James. yeah. Yeah, I'm in yeah. Africa, I never get snow yet, but you know what? I'm going to get one of those. Yeah, I'm going to get myself an eight-foot snowblower. Yeah, I know. I know. Your guys' your guys' idea of winter yeah. is, gee, yeah. it could drop to 60 tonight. That's right. That's it. That's it. And we got the heat going. <laughs> All he needs is a hairdryer. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I have to tell you, though, when we, uh, when we were down in Florida, and we got back to Alaska, we uh, were driving through the valley. You know, we live out here in the valley. And we come up over the top of the hill. And I'll tell you, when you see the beauty of the valley and just how impressive it is, just how beautiful it is. You know, the mountains, all the mountains are about 6,000 feet where we live around us on either side. And they just, they roll back. At one point, they rolled down this long valley to the Kinnick Glacier. And the sun will be lighting up that valley. And it's just extraordinary. And then, you know, you got Pioneer Peak over here. And you've got the twins over here and Matanuska over here. And, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, driving by the moose and so forth. I mean, it's beautiful. It really is beautiful. But, you know, it's a difficult environment. And the difficulty is part yeah, of the tour living here. It keeps it keeps the riffraff out. You're going to run into my car. I'd be scared. Yeah, big is your car. I know. I'd be afraid. Okay. Well, but, but Walter in Virginia, I'm so glad you guys are here. Thank you for being here. It's good, good to hear your voices again. Okay, so with that, let's pray and let's begin our Shabbat gathering, okay? Okay, Heavenly Father, Yahweh, we give thanks to you, Father. We give thanks that you are with us, Father, that you are with us in spirit and truth, with us even here today, that the Ruach will be among us. We pray now, Father, for shalom among the group, that we would have shalom one to another, um, edifying each other and lifting up our rejoicing in you as we come into the Sabbath with singing. And uh, we're so thankful for this day, Father, and for this gathering, for this group. We pray you will bless us now with your words as we unlock uh, more of your Torah portion today to see what is before us. Thank you, Father. In the name of Yahushua. Amen. Amen.
So I want to thank you guys for being present for the Sabbath Fellowship. It's um, the best time of the week. You know, it's one of those things that when we do Shabbat, you know, when you first get into Shabbat, you're like, I can remember the, my Christian friends used to tell me, you're putting us under legalism, you know, trying to do the Shabbat, you know. And then when I got into the Shabbat, it was like, yeah, oh, yeah. Here come, you can spot it. There's Friday night right there. You see it right there? <laughs> you see that Friday night right there? We're headed right in. We're headed right in. So uh, at any rate, the Torah portion today is kind of interesting. And I want to take the time in the Torah portion in particular to, I want to look at this verse in Esword. Because we have something here that is for lack of a better term, self-contradictory in the Tanakh. Uh, yeah. Okay, so we're looking at Exodus 6-2. Now let's go take a look at that in the E-sword real quick before we get started with the Parshat. Let's take a look at E-sword here. Okay, share screen, e-sword, there we go. Okay, Exodus 6, 2. All right, now in 6, 2, we have this phrase, and Elohim spoke unto Moshe and said unto him, I am Yahweh. Verse 3, I appeared unto El Abraham and unto El Yitzhak and unto El Yaakov by El Shaddai, but by my name Yahweh. Was I not known to them? <clears throat> now, this is very interesting because when you read this in when when you read um, when you read the passages concerning Abraham, he refers to him as Yahweh. So something is going on here. So let's see what we see here in Exodus six three. So we say we say ve ra right el. Abraham, okay. And so you would see Ra'a appeared al unto Abraham al Yitzhak ve al Yaakov be'el Shaddai. Shaddai, right? You see Shaddai. Shaddai. Ve Shemi, my name, Yahweh. Lo yada. Now, you can see here that we've got something more going on here with this yada. So let's take a look at this word for just a little bit. And we're going to see here that we have, we've got uh, several prefixes here, which are really kind of unusual because you have this noon as a prefix. Noon, vav. And you can see how that kind of becomes a problem, right? Is that noon or a gimel? No, it's noon. Dalet. Ein. Tav. Yod. Okay. So, now, Strong's is telling us that this word is... Yada, right? 
yada. It says, well, this is yada. But when you look at it, well, no, that's not a yod, that's a bab, because yada would be, as you can see it here, yod dalet ayin. But this is bab dalet ayin, and not only that, but it has a noon in front of it. See that noon? Now you can see that the noon is a very uncommon prefix. In fact, usually it's generally not found at all. So what are, what are we doing with the noon as a prefix in front of this word? That's a big question. And then to say that this is yada, now you can have this word here. When we see this word here, this is kind of a common plural of yada. So yada means to know, but you often see the word uh, that is the word for knowledge, which is da'at, okay? And da'at is spelled like this, the, the dalit ayin tav, da'at. So, uh, and so this, you say da'at t, okay? So the t is, uh, it could be the possessive uh, suffix, mine, mine, my knowledge, okay? And then you have this idea of the noon in front as a prefix. Well, uh, you know, I'm just not familiar with the noon as a prefix. It just strikes me as um, unusual that, uh, uh, let me just, let me just double check something here. Uh, the um, because I am uh, not convinced that this noon is a is a proper prefix. So you could say now sometimes you see this stuff, but when you're talking about the Torah, you almost never see uh, typos in the Torah. You see them elsewhere, but rarely do you see them. Now let's see here. What do we see? Is the, the noon is a prefix? It means we will. Okay. So we talked. Remember we talked about we talked about a couple of things. We talked about the fact that the Aleph has a prefix, Aleph, this means I shall, or I will, excuse me, I will. The noon is a prefix, we will. The Tav is a prefix, this one here, the Tav is a prefix, You shall. You shall. Okay. So these are the kinds of meanings. So this is we will and knowledge. So, so this is this is something different than what we're seeing here in this passage. By my name, they did not know me. Uh, well, so you see. Baal Shaddai in El Shaddai, the Shemi, and my name, Yahweh. Now, if you were to look at this and say, okay, let's put this group together, right? So here you have the Ara'a, the Ra'a, Al Abraham, Al Yitzhak, Ve Al Yaakov. And I appeared unto Abraham and Yitzhak, and Yaakov, okay? Then, Baal in El, or 
in El or by El Shaddai, Vashemi and my name Yahweh. Now what? Now we see this would be a different passage here, which says what? <clears throat> uh, we shall, but we shall not know of this name, but we shall not know. We shall, we will not know it, but we will not know it. Now, I don't necessarily think that means that, because again, you know, this is some of the difficulty you see in Hebrew too. When you talk about past tense versus future tense in a prefix, right? These are problems. So when we see this passage, when we go back to this context, and I appeared unto El Abraham and unto, and unto Yitzhak and unto El Yaakov by El Shaddai, but my name Yahweh was not known to them. Hmm. I don't think so. I don't think that this noon justifies that passage. It's more like, I mean, I can see how this translation would be derived, but it's not like, uh, uh, it's not what I think is the most accurate. Low, because remember, so, so here we see low. I know I've got a lot of slop on the page here, but just a second. When you see low means not, right? No, not much less, nay, neither right? Of not, otherwise. We will, uh, we will know, we will know it not. We will know it not. So when you say, if, if this is referring to, for instance, in the context to verse two, and Elohim spoke unto Moshe and said unto him, I am Yahweh. I appeared and appeared Unto El Avraham, unto El Yitzhak, and unto El Yaakov, by El Shaddai, and my name Yahweh, but you will not know it, or you did not know it, is even better way to say it, you did not know it. So it's possible that this is actually a reference to what Moshe and Aaron didn't know, Right? that my name was Yahweh, I appeared to them as El Shaddai and my name Yahweh, and you did not know it. Okay, anyway, I know I'm making a big deal out of this, but uh, I wanted to go through that so that you guys could see that passage. So you can see that there is a roughness here in this, because when you look at this, I mean, I can go back and show you that Noah referred to Yahweh as Yahweh. Avraham referred to Yahweh as Yahweh openly. So it's openly in the text. So what's this text here talking about? I think it's a mistranslation. I think the people that did not know the name Yahweh or that did not know that Yah had revealed himself to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov as Yahweh. They did, it was Moshe who didn't know that, that had been revealed. Okay, well, let's continue. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan at the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. Okay, big deal. Strangers in a strange land, right? And I have also heard of the groaning of the children of Yasharel, whom the Mitzrim keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Now, 
there's something here. There's a question here that comes before us, which is even when, when Yah was making his covenant with Abraham, Abraham has this dream, right? And the, 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 the animals are cut in pieces and a fire walks between the, the animals. And then he's told this terrible story. Your children will be strangers in a strange land. What is this about? Why would Yah take the chosen people and put them as strangers in a strange land and put them into bondage? Why would he do that? Well, we're going we're gonna to find the answer to that in, the, in today's Torah portion as to exactly why he did it. Now, there's something else we're going to find in today's Torah portion, too. Many of us believe, and we have been told continually, that the captivity was 400 or 430 years, right? And you're going to see that that is simply not possible. When we look at the Torah portion here, you're going to see it's not possible. It is just not possible that the captivity was that long. What is possible is that the captivity, when measured against the Jubilees, is set forth in the book of Jubilees. It's not the captivity they're talking about, but that measurement of 430 years begins the day Abraham left Haran for the land of Canaan. When he begins his sojourning, that is when the 430-day count begins, and the 430-day count ends with Joshua crossing the Yardan with the tribes of Yasharel. You're going to see, you're going to see, I'm going to prove it to you in this Torah portion, okay? Wherefore say unto the children of Yasharel, I am Yahweh. Boom. Now the name is going to be revealed to all of the children of Yasharel. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Mitzrim, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. Hallelujah. And I will take you to me to be a people, and I will be to you Elohim, and you shall know that I am Yahweh Elohechem, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Mitzrim. And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it, it to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov, and I will give it to you for a heritage, for I and Yahweh. Okay, so here we have Yah again swearing seven oaths, right? Shabbat, Shabbat. In this sevenfold manifest, that is the sevenfold doctrine of Yah, the sevenfold doctrine of Yahweh expressed in the very character of Yah, and expressed in the Shabbat, expressed in his swearing seven oaths, expressed in all of this, this mystery that is here. And so Moshe spoke unto the children of Yasharel, but they hearkened not unto Moshe for anguish of the Ruach and for cruel bondage. And Yahweh spoke unto Moshe, saying, Go in and speak unto Pharaoh, the king of Mitzrayim, that he let the children of Yasharel go out of his land. And Moshe spoke before Yahweh, saying, Behold, the children of Yasharel have not hearkened unto me. Not even Yasharel is going to listen to me. So how then is Pharaoh going to hear me? Who am of uncircumcised lips. Now, what is Moses talking about, uncircumcised lips? For those literalists among you who believe that scripture is always literal, you got big problems. You got to circumcise the heart and you got to circumcise the lips. That's going to be a problem, right? I would recommend using a very sharp fillet knife for such an approach, right? You don't want to use a dull knife for that and make sure it's sterilized, right? These be the heads of their father's houses. Now, here we go. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Yasharel. And so here's Reuben, the firstborn. Remember, the Torah provides for the law of primogenitor, the law of primogenitor, that the firstborn would have a double portion. 
But in this case, Reuben is going to lose his birthright because of what Reuben does. And these are the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hetzran, and Carmi. Now, Carmi, when, when the captivity takes place, remember Reuben was given a land grant to the east of the Yardan. And when the captivity takes place, Reuben's family is taken to the east, to the due east. And in fact, his son Carmi goes into what we now call Iran, or the land of Elam. He goes into Iran, and in Iran, he forms the city called Carmi. And they were known as the Carmini, the Carmini, this tribe of Carmi. They were known by the Carmini, but Josephus records them as the Germani, the Germani, right? And we know that in the Hebrew, ger is also uh, a stranger, I mean stranger, right? But Carmi, these are the families of Reuben and the sons of Shimon, Yemuel, and Yamin. Well, we know there is a nation called Yemen right now, Yemen, and it is to the south of Israel. It's to the south of the Negev. If you recall, the land grant given to Shimon was the land to the south. It was the Negev and south. In other words, Shimon was excluded from the tribes, from really kind of intermingling with the tribes. This is in Genesis 49, when Yaakov says, Levi and Shimon, cruel, they are cruel, and they should have nothing to do with the tribes. So Levi is going to be given the priesthood, but Shimon is kind of cast out. You can have your land to the south of us. We don't want to see it. And Shimon, as I mentioned before, Shimon was known as the Sepharad or the Saprad, Saprad, Sapard, Sparta. Shimon, part of the tribe of, of, of Shimon became Sparta, but part of them became Yemen, Yemen, named after the son Yemen. And Ochad and Yakin and Zokar and Shaul, the son of a Kenaani woman. These are the families of Shimon. And so we see that Shimon, once again, suffering a certain level of rejection from his father, marries a Canaanite woman, as did Esau marry a Canaanite woman, right? But even Yehuda married a Canaanite woman. Even Yehuda married a Canaanite woman. Now, these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon and Kohat and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi, the years of the life of Levi were 137 years. Okay. So the total years of Levi is 137 years. So let's assume he didn't start having kids till he's 20, okay? So he's going to do 100 years in Egypt, 107 years in Egypt, maybe, or less. The sons of Gershon, Livni, and Shimi, according to their families. And the sons of Kohat, now Kohat is a son of Levi, okay? So Levi, his son Kohat, and Kohat's sons, Amram and Yitshar, and Hebron and Uziel. So Amram is the grandson of Levi. So we're talking maybe, let's call it anywhere from 40 to 70 years after uh, Levi starts having kids. Okay. So at, at, at maximum, you're talking about 90 years in Egypt. Okay. And the years of the life of Kohat were 130 years. And the sons of Merari, Makli and Mushi, these are the families of Levi according to their generations. And Amram, the grandson, took him 
Yochebed, his father's sister, he married his aunt, which, by the way, Moshe would later prohibit in the Torah, in, 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 Le in Leviticus 18, by Ikra 18, he would prohibit marrying your aunt. But his own father married his aunt, okay? And she bore him Aharon and Moshe. Okay, and the years of the life of Amram were 137 years. So here we see that probably somewhere between 90 and 100 years into the captivity, Moshe is born. Now, do you think Moshe lived another 330 years? There's no way. So the captivity was much less, the captivity in, in Egypt, or the time in Egypt, was much less than 430 years. The 430 years has to go back all the way to the reckoning of Abraham. And it can't just be when Abraham showed up at Hebron either. It's when Abraham left Haran. When he began his sojourn, when he believed Yahweh, Yahweh said, I want you to leave, become a stranger in a strange land. When he left, thus begins the 430 years. And the sons of Yitzhak, Korach, and Nepheg, and Zikri, and the sons of Uziel, Mishael, and uh, Elitzaphan, and Hithri. And Aharon took him, Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nachshon, to be his woman. And she bore him Nadav and Abihu and Elazar and Ithamar. Now, we know Elazar and Ithamar are going to become uh, kind of critical players here later on in the field. And the sons of Korach, Asir and Elkanah and Abiasaf, these are the families of the Korhi. And Elazar, Aharon's son, took him one of the daughters of Putiel to be his woman, and she bore him Pinehas. Oh, we got to break up Pinehas. You know, that's... If, what, what are you going to do without Pinehas in this cycle, right? These are the heads of the fathers of the Leviim according to their families. These are that Aharon and Moshe to whom Yahweh said, bring out the children of Yasharov from the land of Mitzrayim according to their armies. These are they which spoke to Pharaoh, king of Mitzrayim, to bring out the children of Yasharov from Mitzrayim. These are that Moshe and Aaron. So let's don't be, let's don't be beaten around the bush. The Moshe that's born to Amram is the Moshe that is going to talk to Pharaoh. It's not some different Moshe. It's that Moshe. The Aaron born to Amram, that's the, the Aaron we're talking about. Okay. So we're talking some, uh, you know, and, and the record records that, you know, the, that the house of Yasharah was highly favored during the time of Yosef. But after Yosef died, the next Pharaoh forgot all about him. Who's that guy? I don't remember his name. Never heard of him. Right. And how quickly the memory fades. And they completely forgot what Joseph had done for, for all of Egypt. And when this happens, what takes place? You see that, you see that in a very short period of time, 90 years, 100 years, Moshe is born. And Moshe is going to move into his post pretty quickly. I mean, he's going to be affecting this move against Pharaoh about 40 years into his life. So... You know, you're talking here, maybe 120 years into the captivity. It's called maybe maybe Ed, let's be generous and say it's 150 years into the captivity. Okay. Now we're going to get into this, and we're going to see something very interesting happen here too, because you're going to see the authority of the first plagues, the enactment of the first plagues, is going to be done in the hands of Aaron, and not in the hands of Moshe. Okay, 
And Yahweh said unto Moshe, see, I've made you an Elohim to Pharaoh. I've made you a God to Pharaoh, an Elohim, right? I've made you an Elohim to Pharaoh, and Aharon, your brother, shall be your prophet. Well, this is a very interesting concept, and I don't know how much Moshe took this as his own self-aggrandizement. We do know that Moshe's authority was predicated upon a, a staff in his hand that when he dropped it became a serpent, and when he picked it up again, it became a staff. And when Moshe was told, put ye a seraph on a banner, he instead put a serpent on a pole. Now, not that the serpent on the pole is not prophetic, not that Yah didn't intend it, but it's not what Yah told him to do. Yah told him to put a seraph on a banner. And Strong's tries to tell us, oh, a seraph, that's a fiery serpent. Well, I'm glad that Strong's thinks it's a fiery serpent, but we have seraph described by two witnesses. One is Isaiah, and the other is John the Revelator in Chazon, where they both see the same thing, a six-winged seraph. John sees it with eyes all over the wings, you know, like a peacock's wings, right? They had like peacock's wings with the eyes all over the wings. And, and they both saw the same thing, two wings above, two wings with which they flew, two wings with which they covered themselves. They both saw the same thing. There was no fiery serpent involved. This is the imagination of the rabbis who want to justify the fact that he, Moshe was told, you're told in the KJV, Moshe was told to put a fiery serpent on a flag, and he put a serpent on a pole. So it sounds like he was obeying, but I don't think he was. I think he was disobeying. He was putting up his symbol of authority on the pole, a serpent. And as a result, we, we, we still we deal with that today. We deal with Asclepius, which is the symbol of the, of the American Medical Association. And caduceus, which is the symbol of, you know, uh, the medical uh, system being made into merchandise. You shall speak at all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he sends the children of Yashorel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Mitzrayim. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Mitzrayim and bring forth my armies and my people the children of Yasharel out of the land of Mitzrayim by great judgments. Now, when we talk about the land of Mitzrayim at this point, how big is this land? How big is this land, Mitzrayim? Well, it's huge. You have to remember that every nation on in the civilized world was starving during a radical famine. And because it was starving during a radical famine, what happened? Joseph comes to them and says, well, okay, have cough up your money. I'll sell you some wheat. Okay, that worked the first year. What about next year? Well, you better give us your cattle and all your sheep since you're out of money. Okay, well, give us your cattle. Okay, now you're out of money. Now what? All right. Now you belong to Egypt. Now you belong to Mitzrayim. Now you're part of the empire. So when you're told in your history class there in high school or in college, maybe, that the Egyptian empire was basically cloistered around the Nile River, that's absolutely false. The Egyptian empire probably encompassed all of the known world. They were all under fealty to the pharaoh because it was the only place that had wheat. And so when you're talking about all of Mitzrayim, now this is why, this is why, 
the house of Israel was placed in bondage in Mitzrayim because Mitzrayim constituted the known world. That's where everybody was. They were there. Everybody in the known world, in the civilized world, was under Egyptian authority. And now the name of Yah, which was unknown to them. Remember, we looked at this in the Torah portion last week. What did Pharaoh say? Moses comes to him and says, Yahweh has said to me to tell you, let my people go. And Pharaoh says to him, never heard of this guy. Right? That's what he says. Never heard of him. We know these other gods. We know these chimeras that we worship over here. We know this death god that we worship. We know this half raven, half man, half bull, half man, half horse, half man. We know these guys, but we know who's this Yahweh you're talking about, right? And so the intent was, Yah was telling him, I'm going to make my name known to the whole world. And I'm going to do so by exercising great judgments. Now, when you look at these great judgments, remember what the first commandment says, right? Anki Yahweh Elohechem. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who, one, brought you out of the land of Egypt, two, brought you out of bondage. What's that? That's two witnesses to the claim that Yahweh is exactly who he says he is. I am Yahweh, and I did these things. Now, if you were to ask the Egyptian insurance agents about what happened during these 10 plagues, yeah, we got hit by 10 plagues. And the next thing you know, we lost our whole labor class because they packed it up and moved out and took all our wealth with us. Well, what's the claim? Well, the claim is about $80 trillion in wealth that they walked out of here with. Okay, well, you guys going to cover it with your insurance? No, act of God. Right? Look at Clause 32 on page 8. We don't cover acts of God. Right? And so what, what comes out of the insurance agent's mouth? Act of God. First thing they say, Right? Because we know that these events that happened were supernatural events. It wasn't an attacking army. It wasn't a revolution. It wasn't a civil war. It were, they were supernatural events that happened in an orchestrated order. And really, when in the litany that we see here is that they began and they ended at the command of Moshe. So when you see that kind of a thing happen, you can't sit here and say, oh, gee, these were random acts of nature. Like you try to, like the World Economic Forum tries to tell us now, well, those are random acts of nature. Or worse, mankind caused it. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that the Egyptians were eating too many tacos, they would have never had all those frogs. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the kind of logic that we get, you know, right? But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may land, lay my hand on Mitzrayim, right? And the Mitzrayim shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch forth my hand upon Mitzrayim and bring out the children of Yasharel from among them. All of Egypt is then going to figure it out. You're going to learn. And Moshe and Aharon did as Yahweh commanded them, and so did they. And Moshe was fourscore years old. Okay, so here he was 80 years old, and Aaron was, uh, was 83 years old when they spoke unto Pharaoh. Okay, so now we have the number, right? 83. So we're talking about, you know, at this point, you're talking about maybe over 180 years into the captivity, not 400, but maybe 180 years, right in that range, okay? And Yahweh spoke unto El Moshe and unto El Haron, saying, when Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, show a miracle for you, then you shall say unto El Aaron, not Moshe, 
take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a dragon. Is that right? A dragon? Wait a minute. My old book said a serpent. Well, let's look at chapter 7, verse 9 in the Esword, and let's see what shows up there. Right? Chapter 7, let's go there. Verse 9, okay, and it shall become tanin. Now, this is the word that's found there in the Hebrew. You can see it right there. This, once again, this is the Masoretic text, tanin, right? What's this? The second form is used in Ezekiel, but it's the intensive from the same as this. It's a marine or land monster that is a sea serpent or jackal Dragon, dragon. Now you could sit here and say, well, we want to use sea serpent. Well, we could have used sea serpent. His and his rod became a sea serpent. But we think dragon is the better approach because you'll find this word as dragon in other sections of scripture. All right. And when you look at this, what's it tell us? Tan, right? From an unused root meaning to elongate. A monster, a sea serpent, a jackal, or a dragon. And, of course, it became a whale. Now, come on. I mean, here we were in Florida. We were at SeaWorld. You have to go to SeaWorld when you go to Florida. And we were watching the orcas. You trying to tell me Aaron threw down his rod and it became an orca? No. No. It became a dragon. Okay. All right. So, and Moshe and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did as Yahweh had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a dragon. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now, who were these sorcerers? Well, Paul tells us that this was Janus and Jambres, and Moshe withstood Janus and Jambres. Show me Janus and Jambres here in Exodus. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find Janus and Jambres in Exodus. So what? what so where was Paul coming from? Was he just making this stuff out of whole cloth? You know, I'm, I'm going to throw a couple of names out here. Janus and Jambres. Let's, uh, those are some names we could use. Since we're writing fiction, I'll just throw these names out here. No. The book of Jasher tells us it was Janus and Jambres. The book of Jasher tells us that. So and where else do you find it? Nowhere. So what book was Paul reading that he knew it was Janus and Jambres that Moshe had withstood? He was reading Jasher. That's what he was reading. That's how he knew it was Janus and Jambres, the sons of Bilam, right? So all of this stuff kind of weaves together now when you get the whole, when you get the rest of the narrative, it weaves together. Okay. For they cast down every man his rod and they became dragons, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. See ya. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them, as Yahweh had said. So who really was the one that allowed those sorcerers' rods to become dragons? It was Yah who did it. Because Yah intended that Pharaoh would harden his heart and once again say, forget it. Now, here we're going to see an example. And I think this is a very good example. You're going to have Pharaoh making promises. And then he's going to break those promises. Now, I have to tell you, if there was ever a problem with the United States, that's it. A country that makes promises 
and then breaks them. And, and I, I'm just going to say it to you. When we talk about this now, you have to keep in mind, and I hope you guys can keep this in mind, that when you talk about when you talk about keeping a promise, when you talk about a standing as a nation, a nation has no standing if it has no word. You have no standing if you have no word. The scripture says, let your yea be your yea and your nay be your yea and your nay be your nay. If you affirm a contract, you need to live by that contract. Not we changed our mind and now we're breaching it because we elected some new pervert to the position of president. I mean, look at what happened with Andrew Jackson. There was an accommodation made. And first of all, when you start out in America before the Constitution was formed, all real property in America was held in what's called ferre nature, a state of nature, a state of free nature. So when you claimed land that was ferre nature, you claimed a deed against Yah himself. There was no other pre-holder. You claimed your deed against Yah. Now a group of people get together and say, well, you know, we had an election and we voted that we have a superior deed to your deed. Uh, you voted that? Well, the law says that you have to have a deed in writing and there has to be a transaction that shows it. Like Abraham, when he paid for Marat Machpelah, he paid for it and he got the deed in writing. Can you show me your deed? Oh, no, we just voted for it. And we've given ourselves a deed superior to your deed, which means you need to pay us rent. And if you don't pay us rent, we're going to evict you and take our property back from you. Well, how'd you get that deed? We voted on it. There was a group of us, we got together and we were bigger than you. So we voted on it. And now we have a superior deed to your property. Let me tell you, that is anathema to the Torah. That's anathema to the Torah. And then when you start talking about the Cherokee Nation, where the American government comes and says, we're going to resolve this issue within the indigenous people, where in the northern part of Georgia, the northern part of Alabama, the southern part of Tennessee, and we're going to recognize a nation state called the Cherokee Nation. We're going to recognize this nation state. We're going to put boundaries around it. And we're going to say that's the nation state of the Cherokee. Okay. Then Andrew Jackson comes along and his buddies are like, hey, we could use that property. man." You talk about some great property. They're on the Tennessee River there. They got some nice turf. It's good stuff. We can sure use that property. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just tell them, you know, that whole business of giving you a nation state, that's dead. We're revoking that promise. Get off. Get off the land. Get on the trail of tears. Hit the road, baby. You're out of here. That's what he did. And it kicked them off. And he made them but was one of the first forced marches of genocide that we see in the modern epic. This would be followed by the genocide perpetrated by Turkey against the Armenians in the early 1900s. The Turks denied, oh, that never happened, it never happened. Two million Armenians died. There's photos. There are photos of that Armenian genocide when the Turks crucified Armenian girls on crosses on the pathway back to Armenia. I've seen the pictures. Okay, they crucified them because they were Christians. They crucified them on the pathway back to Armenia. And the Armenians estimate there were 2 million that died from that. And all the leadership, which, by the way, was a precursor Nazi leadership in Turkey, all those leaders were reversed by Ataturk. And Ataturk said, we're going to impose a secular nation here. We're not going to be doing that kind of stuff anymore. And the Armenians then single-handedly went and assassinated every single one of those leaders that had been in power before. 
But we had we we did it before Turkey did it to Armenia. We did it to the Cherokee. Get on the road. You guys, we're going to give you some land out in Oklahoma that nobody wants because the wind blows out there all the time. You go out there, hit the road. And most of them died on what's called the Trail of Tears. And the land we gave to them in Oklahoma, we said, here's your land. You can live here now. Then a few years later, oh, well, let's just put people out there and we'll send the Sooners out there and they can just take out whatever that land they want. Because after all, it's only Indians. Just take it away from them. Just take out the land you want, the Sooners, right? But you look at what happened. Look what Yah did to the nation that did that. Those people that went in and took all that land in Southern Tennessee and all that land in Northern Alabama and Northern Georgia, just a few years later, 20 years later, their sons would be involved in a bloody civil war. And Sherman would come through that very area and burn everything to the ground. And, there, and the, the sons of those people that took the land from the Cherokee in breach of their contract were in graveyards. That's where they were. They ended up in graveyards. You know, so when, you know, a nation has a responsibility, any responsible nation has a responsibility to live up to its agreements. You don't change your mind. You don't change your mind. That's a spiritual adultery. When you enter into an international agreement, you respect the international agreement and you live up to it. If you want to modify the agreement, you know, if you enter into a contract, you enter into a contract to buy a used car on terms from a dealer, okay? And you say to yourself, you know what? These car payments are too high. So I'm just going to unilaterally adjust the contract to change my payments down to 100 bucks a month. Can you do that? No, you can't do that. If you enter into a contract with somebody, you have to have mutual agreement to amend the contract. You have to have mutual agreement to amend the contract. And this is what is this is what national integrity is all about. So here you have Pharaoh who's going to look at Moshe and say, "Oh yeah. I've made up my mind Moshe, you've convinced me. Yah is pretty powerful. You guys can go." Okay, well, I'll go ahead and stop the frogs then. Thanks. Forget it. You're not going anywhere. I changed my mind. Now get back to work, right? You see, that destroys a nation. That destroys a nation. And Yahweh said unto Moshe, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Get you unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goes out into the water, and you shall stand by the river's brink until he, against he comes. And the rod which was turned into a serpent, you shall take into your hand. And you shall say unto him, Yahweh Elohai of the Ibrim has sent me unto you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Now, li listen, this call has not ended. This call has not ended. Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. That call is still present to this very day. When you, when you get out of the bondage of Egypt and you go to the wilderness, you go to the wilderness to serve Yah. That's what you do. You're not there to survive or do any other thing. You're there to go into the wilderness to serve Yah. Thus says Yahweh, and this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in my hand upon the waters which are in the river and shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die and the river shall stink. Now, this is, it's one thing to say the river's going to turn red. Gee, it turned blood red, you know, like a blood red moon. It turned blood red. 
Great. Does that mean it's blood? No. But when all the fish die and the river stinks, well, that, that's something other than just the color changing. And the Mitzrayim shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And Yahweh spoke unto Moshe, saying, say unto Aaron. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Moshe say, I'm going to take my staff that turned into a serpent and turn it into blood? Well, but here, Yahweh spoke unto Moshe, said, say unto Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand upon the waters of Mitzrayim, upon their streams and upon their rivers and upon their ponds and upon their pools of water, that they may become blood and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Mitzrayim, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moshe and Aaron did so. Both of them stretched out their rods over the water, as Yahweh commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died and the river stank and the Mitzrayim could not drink of the water of the river. And there was blood throughout all the land of Mitzrayim. And the magicians of Mitzrayim also did so with their enchantments. On what water? On what water? What water is left for them to turn into blood? Oh, we can do that too. Quick, get your, get, put your water in the water. Put your rod in there and pretend like you're turning that into blood. Quick, get it in there. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken to them as Yahweh had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. And all the Mitzrayim dug round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. And seven days were fulfilled. And after that, Yahweh had spent the river. So he didn't, no one told him it was going to only last for seven days, but it did. So you got a seven-day fast, right? No drinking nothing for seven days. No drinking anything for seven days. I'm going to give you guys a seven-day fast. No drinking any anything. And Yahweh spoke unto Moshe and said, Go unto Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus says Yahweh, let my people go, that they may serve me. And if you refuse to let them go, behold, I'll smite all your borders with frogs. Frogs? Okay. I don't know that I'm that concerned. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house and into your bedchamber and upon your bed, into the house of your servants and upon your people and into your ovens and into your kneading troughs. There isn't going to be anything that's going to be free of frogs. I mean, just imagine this. You know, you're trying to cook dinner. A frog jumps into the salad, you know, jumps into the frying pan. You go to bed, you got 36 frogs that you find under the bed covers, right? And... The frogs shall come upon both upon you and upon your people and upon all your servants. And Yahweh spoke unto El Moshe, say unto El Aharon. Now, again, this is not Moshe's rod being used here, but Aaron's. Stretch forth your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause the frogs to come upon the land of Mitzrayim. And Aharon stretched out his hand over the water of Mitzrayim, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Mitzrayim. And the magicians also did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Mitzrayim. Yeah, we can do that too. Well, of course you can. You know, uh, there's no frogs here. Quick, put down your put down your staff and claim frogs are coming. Hey, we're going to call up frogs. Well, how'd you miss? There's frogs everywhere, right? So you see Janice and Jambres over here trying to take credit for the thing that Aharon is doing with his rod. And Pharaoh called for Moshe and Aaron, and he said, uh, hey, uh, would you go back to El Yahweh and you know get rid of these frogs? Would you go back and, and, and treat him and say, uh, could you can the frogs go away? And if you do, I'll let the people go that they may do sacrifice unto Yahweh. 
And Moshe said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me. When shall I entreat for you and for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your house, that they may remain in the river only? When should I do this? And he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Be it according to your word that you may know that there is none like unto Yahweh Elohim. So here you have something you could say, this is a natural event. There was a frog plague that came on naturally because there was too much sun and, and over the winter. The winter was too warm. The frogs were able to populate. Blah, 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 blah. But now you have Pharaoh coming to Moshe and saying, get rid of him tomorrow. And Moshe says, okay. And the frogs shall depart from you and from your houses and from your servant and from your people, and they shall remain in the river only tomorrow. And Moshe and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moshe cried unto El Yahweh because of the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. And Yah did according to the word of Moshe. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stank. You know, I don't know if you've ever smelled a dead frog, but I'll tell you, yeah, they're, they're stinky. The land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart. Uh, yeah, just kidding. Can't you take a joke, Moshe? Just kidding. He hardened his heart uh, unto them, as Yahweh had said. And Yahweh said unto El Moshe, say unto El Aharon, Stretch out your rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Mitzrayim. Now, here's a plague. This is a plague, right? Lice. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth and became lice in man and in beast, and in all the dust of the land became lice throughout all of the land of Mitzrayim. And the magicians joined in, did so with their enchantments to bring forth the lice, claiming they were the ones who ran on it, but they could not do it. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of Elohim. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them, or Moshe or Aaron, as Yahweh had said. So Yah says unto Moshe, okay, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh when he comes forth to the water and say unto him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. Else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I'm going to send a swarm of flies upon you and upon your servants and upon your people and into your houses. And the house of Mitzrayim shall be full of swarms of flies and the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen. Now, here's where we get the separation. It comes to the flies. Okay. Now, Goshen isn't going to have any more of these plagues. You're getting them all. It's not going to Goshen. I will separate the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that there will be no swarm supplies there at all, to the end that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. And Yahweh did so, and there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' house, and upon all the land of Israel. The land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. Now, you know, depending on the size of the fly, right? If you got those little tiny fruit flies, you know, those things are annoying to beat the band, right? They, you know, they fly around the living room, you know. I finally got one of these uh, zappers. I don't know if you know, they, they look kind of like a badminton racket. And you got a couple of nine volts in them. So you can just kind of backhand the fruit fly and zap them. You know, get this little electric voltage in the middle of your badminton racket. It's a great thing. It gets rid of the fruit flies pretty quickly. And it's a lot of fun. But... What if it's not fruit flies? What if they were horse flies with the big stinger, right? 
I mean, I saw some flies when I was coming through Kansas once, man. It just blew my mind. It was like, no, I don't want those flies near me at all. I'm not, I don't want to be bit by one of those. I don't want to be stung by one of them. I don't want to, I don't want to be in the same room with them. And the guys that were working at the gas station, there had to be a hundred flies up above them, you know, on, on the windowsills. Like, how do you guys do this? How do you work here? Anyway, those were the good old days back in the seventies where we had to live with that kind of stuff. And Pharaoh called for Moshe and Aaron. He said, go ye sacrifice to your Elohim in the land. And Moshe said, it is not meet so to do so. For we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Mitzrayim to Yahweh Elohim. So we can't just go out here. We can't leave. We just can't go out here and do sacrifice in front of you. You've got a bunch of cow worshipers. You not only have cow worshipers, you also have animal worshipers. You have, you have goat worshipers. You have people that were worship, worshiping chimeras. They were worshiping all these things. You can't do that. We can't sacrifice because this will be an abomination to the Mitzvah before their eyes. Will they not stone us? Yes, they will. We need to go three days journey into the wilderness and do the sacrifice to Yahweh Elohim as he shall command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go, and you may sacrifice to Yahweh Elohim in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away entreat it for me. And Moshe said, Behold, I go out from you, and I will entreat El Yahweh that the swarm supplies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore in letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. And Moshe went out from Pharaoh and entreated Yahweh, and Yahweh did according to the word of Moshe, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, and there remained not even one. And Pharaoh, nonetheless, hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. So this guy is just like, you know, backsliding, lying, contract-breaking, word-breaking dog, you know, the foulest kind of politician. And, you know, typically the kind that you would find maybe in the U.S. Congress. You know, I was going to run for office at one time, and I was going to run as a hardcore communist in downtown Seattle. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and nationalize all the money of Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and maybe Google and uh, Intel. I'm just going to nationalize and take 100% of their wealth, and we're going to split it up in a big pot downtown Seattle. I'm going to give it all to you guys. And we're going to, I'm going to be to the hard left of Lenin and Stalin in initiating hardcore communism. And then once I got elected, then just lie and become an, an absolute right-wing conservative libertarian and start passing tax relief and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then when people come to me and say, what did you do? I said, well, I'm just a politician like all your other politicians. Just lie like a rug to get the vote. All right. Then Yahweh said to El Moshe, go in unto Pharaoh and tell him, thus says Yahweh Elohai of the Ivrim, let my people go that they may serve me. For if now we're going to get serious, okay? Now Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's like, I can live with all this stuff. And your Yah is a, is a, pass, is a, is a piece of cake. He mistakes kindness for weakness. It's a big error. He thinks because Yah is merciful, that he can just put proceed now to trample over him anytime he feels like it. I'll just break any agreement I want and just come back to you and say, well, just go tell him to stop that. And he'll do it. Yahweh said unto El Moshe, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says Yahweh Elohai of the Ibrim, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and will hold them still, behold, the hand of Yahweh is upon your cattle, which is in the field and upon the horses and upon the asses and upon the camels and upon the oxen and upon the sheep 
and there shall be very grievous pestilence. And Yahweh shall sever between the cattle of Yasharel and the cattle of Mitzrayim. There shall nothing die of all that belongs to Yasharel. And Yahweh appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow, Yahweh shall do this thing in the land. And Yahweh did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Mitzrayim died. But of the cattle of the children of Yasharel, not one died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of Yasharel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Like, come on, Pharaoh, smell some coffee. Wake up here, Pharaoh, catch on here, catch the drift. But remember that he can't catch the drift. Why can't he catch the drift? Because Yah hardened his heart. Okay? It's not that Pharaoh was over here being just a closed-minded geek. Yah had closed his eyes. Yah had closed his ears. Just as Yah is closing the eyes and ears of the leadership in Europe and the leadership in Canada, the leadership in the United States, the leadership in Australia, he's completely closed their ears and their eyes. They cannot see, they cannot hear, and they cannot understand. They can't. You can reason with them all day long. It's like I used to have a, I used to, one of my arguments when I was a kid. People would try to argue with me, and I'd tell them, well, look, here's your problem. I'm not subject to reason, and I never tell the truth. What's your argument? It's your argument is irrelevant. Coming to a person with a rational, or coming to an irrational, insane person who is a pathological liar with an argument of reason is totally irrelevant. It means nothing. You're going nowhere. You know, it's like trying to have an extended conversation about what's the best opening chess move with your dog. You can be as persuasive as you want to be. Your dog ain't getting one word of it, right? And Yahweh said unto El Moshe and unto El Aharon, okay, well, take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace and let Moshe sprinkle it toward the heavens inside of Pharaoh, and it shall become small dust in all the land of Mitzrayim and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beasts throughout the land of Mitzrayim. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood up before Pharaoh and Moshe sprinkled it up in the heavens. And it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. Now, you remember that this is, uh, this is also a sign that's going to happen in Revelation, right? That there will sores will break out on men for five months, right? And the magicians could not stand before Moshe because of the boil. So Moshe withstood Janus and Jambres right here. They could not, before the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Mitzrayim, and Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them. You see, it wasn't Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yah hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And, and as Yahweh had spoken unto El Moshe, and Yahweh said unto El Moshe, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, thus says Yahweh Elohai of the Ebrim, let my people go that they may serve me. Hello, this is the umpteenth time I've come before you. I'm saying it again. Hello, let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon your heart, upon your servants, and upon your people that you may know. There is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite you and your people with pestilence, and you shall be cut off from the earth. 
And in very deed, for this cause, I have raised you up for to show you my power that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As we know, that's Hashem. No. My name shall be declared throughout all the earth. Why did Yah go to all of this? Why did Yah put the whole of the house of Yasharel in bondage in Egypt? Why did he do that? Why did all of these things, these 10 plagues come upon the Egyptians? Why did all of this occurrence happen that is recorded in history that is such a landmark event in the faith? Why did this happen? What was Yah doing that he made Abraham's children strangers in a strange land? To show you his power that the name Yahweh would be declared throughout the whole earth. Does that sound like you're not supposed to declare it? As you exalt you yourself against my people, that you will not let them go, behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as never been seen in Mitzrayim since the foundation thereof, even until now. In fact, we could have a series of 9 to 10 to 12 winter storms blow into your city with record rainfall that you've never seen before, that washes out everything, that threatens to destroy all of your dams, that floods all of your cities. That's what's going to happen. Oh, I see nothing. I hear nothing. I know nothing. I'm not changing my perverted ways. I'm going to continue to defile the social order. I'm going to continue to demoralize my people and degrade the nation. I didn't see anything. Just because you brought us 12 winter storms in a row, that doesn't mean I saw anything. Send, therefore, now gather your cattle. And all that you have in the field, for upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field shall not be brought home. The hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. So here he's even telling them, get your cattle into the barn. Get moving. Get your cattle into the barn, because the hail's coming. He that feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into their houses. But he that did not regard the word of Yahweh left his servants and his cattle in the field. What's that tell you? You would think that somebody would hear this. Hello, does anybody have an ear to hear? Does anybody have eyes to see? And Yahweh said unto El Moshe, stretch forth your hand toward the heavens, that there may be hail in all the land of Mitzrayim, upon man, upon beast, upon every herb of the field, throughout the whole of the land of Mitzrayim. And Moshe stretched forth his rod toward the heavens, and Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and fire ran along upon the ground. You know, have you seen these things? What do they call it? They call this, uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, they've got these fire tornadoes. I don't know if you've seen these, but we've seen them in the States recently, the last couple of years, where all of a sudden you got a tornado that forms and there's fire in the tornado. And the tornado's rolling along with flames in it. And then this is what they're seeing here. They're seeing these fire tornadoes come in, right? Fire ran along the ground, and Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Mitzrayim. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail. Very grievous. I mean, that's that's tough. I mean, you're talking about major stuff going on here. 
such as there was none like it in all the land of Mitzrayim since it became a nation. And the hail smoked throughout all the land of Mitzrayim, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And hail smote every herb of the field and broke every tree. Now, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen a heavy hailstorm, but I remember once I was in Colorado in the, in the uh, late 70s, and there was a hailstorm that came in at Fort Collins. The hailstones were the size of grapefruit. Now, this hail was so big, it was coming through people's roofs of their homes, blowing through their roofs, caving in windshields, totally destroying cars. I mean, anything that was outside was completely destroyed. When you're talking about a hailstone that's the size of a grapefruit, think about that. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moshe and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Oh, you figured it out, did you? Yahweh is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Bingo. Entreat El Yahweh, for it is enough. This is enough. That there be no more mighty thunderings and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moshe said unto him, as soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto El Yahweh, and the thunder shall cease. Neither shall there be any more hail that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that ye will not fear Yahweh Elohim. I know that ye will not fear Yahweh Elohim, you and your servants. And the flax and the barley was smitten. Okay, very important. The flax and the barley was smitten, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was bold. What's that tell you? This was the first month of the year. This was a bead. The barley was already in the ear. The flax was already bold. Now, just a, a, for a side point on barley and flax, you know, barley and flax are a winter crop uh, in a lot of places, like in the, what we call the lower 48. Barley and flax are a winter crop. Up here, barley and flax are a summer crop. The largest producer of flax in the world, believe it or not, is Russia. They grow more flax than anyone. Ireland used to be a big source of flax uh, because flax is where you make linen. I don't know if you've ever seen the process, but it's really quite enchanting to watch linen be made because you take the flax and you literally harvest the flax and then you take the flax and you take it over a, a board that's full of nails and you just slap the flax down on it and you pull it, right? And as you pull it, up comes this thread of flax that is then woven into linen. Now, of course, they use machines for this now, but this is the way they used to make linen with the spinning wheels and so forth. They would grow the flax, smash it over these things, and then they would take that and they would spin it into yarn. And then from that yarn, the linen yarn, they would make they would make linen. And to this day, there is still, it's very hard. There's only one linen producer in Ireland now that remains because linen was replaced by cotton. But it's very interesting that linen is um, is a very important cloth to uh, to the biblical means. I mean, the priests are instructed to wear linen and to wear linen that is unmixed. No wool in the linen. Why not? Because wool will generate static electricity. And if you generate static electricity and you walk into the Holy of Holies, you're a dead man. So... The, the, this is why they were told to wear pure linen clothing and no mixing of the linen. And we see also in this environment, when you see this kind of hail coming down and lightning running around the ground, it's indicative that there is, uh, that there is some kind of huge 
static electricity event going on on the earth. Now, I think I think when we see what happened with the Ark of the Covenant, some of these other things, I think there is indication that at this time, there was an electric generation around the earth that was really enormous, some kind of, you know, right now we're in a very diminished magnetosphere. But at this point, it was probably a very heightened magnetosphere with a great deal of static electricity. Okay, so, and the flax and the barley was smitten, for the barley was in the air, the flax was bold. So it wrecked all the barley and wrecked all the flax. But the wheat and the rye were not smitten, for they had not yet grown up. And Moshe went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread abroad his hands under El Yahweh, and the thunders and hail ceased, and the rain was not poured upon the earth any longer. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Yahshua go, as Yahweh had spoken by Moshe. Incredible. Just an incredible story. I mean, you know, when I read this story, it reminds me of what I see in the book of Revelation. That here you see the coming of the Son of Man coming in great power and authority as lightning is lit up from the east to the west. And people, instead of recognizing this and going, okay, we're here now. Right? The son of Yah is now appeared as the lion of the house of Judah. We probably should make that conversion prayer that we always thought about doing. Now would be a good time to do it. That's not what Revelation says happens at all. No, they shake his fist at him, try to go to war with him because their heart is hardened. And here we see it here again the heart is hardened. How could Pharaoh harden his heart? repeatedly after this kind of destruction comes upon Mitzrayim. And he sees clearly that he can tell Moshe, ask Yah to stop. Moshe does, and Yah stops it. How is it that he just continues to harden his heart, to be so stiff-necked that he cannot see the forest for the trees? Well, we see it in humankind today. We see what's going on with mankind today. And I don't know. I mean, when we talk about the disease that is given to us in delusion, 2 Thessalonians 2, the great delusion that's given, or the great deception that's given in Romans 1, all the you know, same descriptive. Mankind is going to be given over to a great delusion because he did not love the truth. And once given over to the great delusion, I think Jesse said this on the show the other day, once given over to the delusion, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. It keeps getting worse. And your heart gets hardened, your eyes get dim, your ears get dim, you can't hear, you can't see, and ultimately, your the delusion brings you to damnation. That's how it's put in Second Thessalonians, that they will be given a great delusion that those who did not love the truth might be damned. That's the language. That's the language that's found there, might be damned. And so we see here, we see here something very, very, I think this is a very good lesson for all of us, because once again, we're all in a situation now that is very similar to this. We have, we're living in Egypt. You know, one of the things we've kind of, if you guys don't mind me taking a kind of a side trip, now that we've finished up the, the Parshat. You know, we're living in, you know, when you look at uh, what happened in Egypt, did Egypt ever really go away, the spirituality of Egypt? No. The spirituality of Egypt never left. Now, you know, we've talked a little bit about ancient in ancient days. We've talked about the idea that at some point 
in the modern epoch that the oceans were much lower than they are now. Now, if the oceans were 300 feet or more lower than they are now, this means a whole bunch of things. Number one, it means that Africa, Northern Africa in particular, was much larger than it is now, that it, the plateau uh, went quite a ways out into the Mediterranean Sea. And in fact, Africa was connected to Italy in this plateau. Now, my own theory is, is that you're, you know, you have this discussion in scripture talking about the land of Ramesses, the land of Goshen, right, as being distinct from Egypt. The house of Yasharev was in the land of Goshen. That area where the pyramids were was called the land of Ramesses. Why? Because there were major temples erected to Ramesses and the Sphinx and the, and the Great Pyramids. But this is kind of a religious site, if you will. It's kind of like if, if you came to the United States after the nuclear war and you say a thousand years later, you say, well, we've looked and we found out that the capital of the United States was Mount Rushmore because that's where they had this huge relic of their, you know, of their figureheads, right? Well, you can see that you've got something that's obviously constructed there that looks like it, it could be a temple site or could be a capital site just because you've got these four heads on the mountains. But that doesn't mean it's the capital. Now, one thing we know about the about the Egyptian uh, religion, if you will, Egyptian belief, was that it was centered around this idea of Isis, Horus, Set, or Ishtar, Nimrod, Tammuz, Semiramis, Mithras, Tammuz. It's the same ideology, the same idea that there was a uh, fertility goddess married to the sun god, and the sun god was murdered, and you know somehow his severed body part was capable of impregnating the fertility goddess who gives birth to the sun, and then the sun is killed by a boar. And so this, this trinity is signified by the three letters IHS, Isis, Horus, Seth. Now you see IHS over the top of all Jesuit institutions. You see it on their flags and you see it on Jesuit institutions. Now, you have a group that is the controlling entity behind the Jesuits, and that is also the controlling entity behind the Vatican, which is called the Knights of Malta. Now, you guys might recall this. I'm just going to share it with you on the whiteboard here. But when we look here, you've, you've got a couple of things. One is we know that, first of all, uh, the symbols of religions also are mark the calendar. So for instance, we see this symbol, right? Uh, okay, that's not pretty good, but here we go. We see this symbol, and this marks the religion that is predicated upon the lunar calendar, okay? Then we see this symbol, which is the equilateral cross, this is predicated upon the solar calendar. Why? Because this marks equinox, equinox, solstice, solstice. Okay. Now, 
with this calendar, this what you see is this equilateral cross is quite well known. And when it's expressed, you know, in its entirety, it looks kind of like this. But it's four equal sides. Now, what's that cross called? Anybody know? That's called the Maltese. equilateral cross. Maltese. Yeah. The Maltese cross. Yeah. The Maltese cross. Yeah. And it's but you're right, John. It's an equilateral cross because it's got the four equal sides, right? But it's known as the Maltese cross. Now, the Maltese cross then is marked over the top with these three letters, IHS, okay? Now you can, you can Google this if you want, you'll see the thousands of images that come up with IHS, right? So what we see is, is that the Egyptian, the Egyptian religion never left. The Egyptian religion that I believe was housed in Malta, I believe Malta, Malta was actually the real capital of Egypt initially. This Egyptian religion never left. And so when you get to the Vatican, you find two critical Egyptian symbols. You find the cupola, which is representative of the womb of Isis. And you find the obelisk, which is representative of the phallus of Nimrod or Horus. Okay, this is what you see. Now, these two objects, the cupola and the obelisk, are now find, found at the situs of all Egyptian religions. So you see this cupola and obelisk in London. You see this cupola and obelisk at the Vatican. You see this cupola and obelisk in Washington, D.C. And if you look in the United States, you'll find virtually every capital city, there's a few exceptions, but every capital city has a cupola and an obelisk because it is maintaining the religion of Egypt. So you have Egypt, then let's let's do like, okay, so let's let, let's look at it. Here, let me give you an analogy you guys can understand. Here's Egypt, the, and its philosophy we're gonna call Windows 95, okay? Then along comes Babylon. That becomes Windows XP. It's just written on top of Egypt, right? Then along comes the decadence of human secularism, and that's written on top of that. We, let's call that Windows 10, okay? When you go back and you look at the pattern, you'll see that the software for Windows 95 is still present in all of that software. It comes through all of it. It's just you've got modification and modification and modification. This is why you have to have a massive system, computer system, to handle the new Windows because it's got all of that still in it. So the point I'm making on all of this is that when we look at when we look at what's happening here with this Egyptian religion, we still are under Pharaoh. That's the point. We're still under Pharaoh. You see? And because we're still under Pharaoh, we're still under this Egyptian ideology and because we're still under the Egyptian ideology, we still have leaders who have ears that can't hear and eyes that can't see and who are hardening their hearts, even in the judgment of Yah. And the judgment of Yah is upon the earth. 
we should not look at this and say, gee, the judgment of Yah is not here. The judgment of Yah is upon the earth. When you look at this now, I mean, you know, you have all kinds of people coming up with all kinds of incredible statements. Oh, gee, global warming. Well, global warming, you know, climate change may be happening, but I can guarantee you, you're not part of it. There's nothing you did to contribute to it, and there's nothing you're going to do to stop it. Whether it's global warming or global cooling, it makes no difference. You're not instrumental in its happening because you're not God, and you're not going to be God that's going to stop it from happening. And it's the same thing with this, you know, when you listen to Mike around the world, I mean, we're at the end of the world, the world was supposed to end on January 5th, didn't happen. But we do see a weakened magnetosphere. You know, Doug Vogt is predicting a, uh, a flipping of the poles. Well, okay, maybe it's going to happen. But what we are seeing is this, we're seeing inordinates. And as one guy said, Doug Vogt said, when you see the Aurora Borealis in Florida, this is for James and Maria Isabel, when you see the Aurora Borealis in Florida, you might as well pack it up and get in your boat or get on your surfboard because the tsunami's coming, right? According to the, the pole flippers. But we can see that what is really happening, we know for sure is happening, is that Yah is ju judging the governing class of the earth. And you're seeing destruction come to the economies exactly the same way it came to Egypt in the past. It's coming in exactly the same way, right? You're seeing the cattle get wiped out. You're seeing the hailstorms. You're seeing firestorms. You're seeing hurricanes. You're seeing earthquakes. You're seeing volcanoes. You're seeing many things. And people want to say, oh, well, that's weather wars. Oh, that's being engineered. Well, that's not. Okay, well, you can try to say it's engineered if you want. It looks to me like the hand of Yah. It looks conspicuously to me like the hand of Yah. Now, I want to say this. A lot of people were predicting that there was going to be a brutal winter in Europe this year. And given the fact that the natural gas supplies have been arrested from Russia coming into Europe, we could see reason why some, there'd be reason to believe that. However, instead, there's been an inordinately warm winter in Europe. Why is there an inordinately warm winter in Europe? It's because Yah has a plan for Europe. And I can tell you what that plan is. And I really believe this. We talked about this last night. The churches in Europe are going to fill up again. They're going to fill up again. Because this hiatus, this 70 years of sitting around at a coffee shop waiting for holiday is coming to an end. And it's coming to an end because the policies that have been fed to Europe by the secular among us, claiming that they had answers, all of those answers are now in failure. They're all in failure. And as they all come to failure, you have to look at the question and say, gee, if we follow these failures, like World Economic Forum, for instance, and some of these other ideologies, which are just simply absurd, if we follow this any further, well, then we're going to go back into a lockdown and everybody's going to have to wear a mask and everybody's going to have to get jabbed again and on and on and on and on and on and on. That offers no solution to anyone. You compare that 
to following the ways of the Torah, you compare that to remembering your first love. You compare that to walking in the ways of Mashiach. You compare that to the beauty of life that Yah has given us, life and life more abundantly. Life of relationships and love and caring for one another and building a social order. Life of respect, life of families thriving and having respect for one another. Lives of commitments being met, of people who say their yay is their yay and their nay is their nay. These kinds of things. I believe this is going to happen because with this, with, with this convulsion that we call this war in Ukraine, this convulsion is going to be coming to an end here relatively soon. And when it does, and a lot of this is thanks to the decision that was made yesterday by the German leadership, a, a parliamentary member in Germany stood up on the floor in Berlin and said, you know what? We're not going to put panzers in Ukraine. We did that just a few years ago. We put panzers in Ukraine. And the idea of us putting panzers in Ukraine to face Russia resulted in the complete destruction of Berlin. And you can walk right outside these headquarters right now and see two Russian tanks sitting out there right now as a result of the last time we put panzers in Ukraine. So the answer is, no, we're not putting panzers in Ukraine. And then they went to Poland and said, and furthermore, you're not putting our panzers in Ukraine. This move by Germany was the most significant turn we've seen since 2020. Very important turn. And it is a turn that now is going to result in a number of things. I mean, one, we're going to see a breakaway from the satanic leadership that we have in the United States. It's going to break up. There's going to be a break from it because the people in Europe are going to say, we thought we had answers from you and we don't. What we have from you is war and you're making a profit while you're trying to enslave all of us. And we're just not going to go there. We're not going there. We're not going to go there anymore. And so what you're going to see is now there may yet come some destruction to the U.S. and there may become destruction even to the U.K. But I can tell you at the end of the day, Europeans are going to look back and say, you know what? These are the people that we were. You know, this was the big question in Nazi Germany. How is it that the nation of Goethe and Bach could become the nation of Hitler and Goebbels? How could that happen? You know? And I'll tell you, for those of you who want to know what it's like to be back with your first love and the faith of Mashiach governing your life, do yourself a favor this afternoon and listen to the Bach B minor mass. The Bach B minor mass. Maybe one of the greatest orchestral choir works ever written by anybody ever. I had the opportunity to hear this live in Seattle, and I'll tell you, Bach, he knew exactly what he was doing, and it is majestic in its celebration. And so this is why I'm saying to you all that when we look at this now, let us recognize, number one, that the destruction we have seen around us for so long 
was not the hands of wicked men, but the wicked men were tools in the hands of Yah to do wickedness, that judgment would come upon a wicked, deprived, depraved, demoralized, defiled social order, that we might be able to clearly and carefully see this is where we must go to restore ourselves. This is where we must go to restore ourselves. And I can tell you, the two fundamental tools, we talk about the Torah, but inside the Torah, the two tools that make a society remoralized, re-energized, is protecting virginity up until marriage and maintaining a monogamous marriage thereafter. Those two, those two things energize and create a viable, living, strong, and powerful culture. When you kill those two things, you walk, you're just taking your society and walking it right down to the funeral parlor. And when you get to the point that you have licensed every sexual orientation known to man, you know what your society is? Dead, inert, zero. You've got no energy left at all. You're completely defiled. You're completely demoralized. And all that you're waiting for now is a conquering army. So that's that. Let's let somebody else speak besides me. I've had enough of my talking. If I hear myself anymore, I'm going to get ill. Lynn, speak. Yeah, I got a question. Speak. In, uh, Matthew uh, 24, 22, it says, and except those days be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, the days should be shortened. How many days is a day? Is y'all going to shorten the days? And it's only going to shorten it by 2.25 days, according to my calculation. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I'm kidding. And, and in, uh, did the tribulation start uh, in 2017, September 13th? You know, the sign of the virgin. If that's the correct date, we have to be more than three and a half years in tribulation. No, that's what I believe started. What I believe started in 2017 was the Revelation 12 sign. Remember that it says okay, that, okay. that okay. the sign, okay. let, let, let me finish my answer. That will be the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. Not the coming of the Son of Man, but the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. And so we've seen this sign again. And remember, this sign was seen only one other time in human history, which was Venus appearing out of the womb of, of uh, Virgo, which was the Bethlehem sign that was seen in 3 B.C., and so this is this is the uh, the other sign too. This is the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. Now, my own feeling on that is that if if we're you know, you know, and look, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a scripture interpreter. So the fact is, is that we could, you know, we could be completely wrong. But I think we have seen this. We're seeing the seven years. You have first of all, you have the first 1260 days, and then you go into time times and a half a time in the passage of Revelation 12. So this Revelation 12 sign is roughly a seven-year sign. And I think we saw the first three and a half years beginning in, in October 1st, 2017, and then coming up into March of 2021. And we're seeing the second three and a half years now as Satan makes war on earth. Yeah. And he's making war on earth against the saints. I mean, that's what's going on. It's very clear 
that that you know when you see these forces i mean you know yesterday i was reading the news and i was so overwhelmed by the bad news i mean you know these guys at the world economic forum get up and they start <laughs> saying you know we should make sure that no human being has any access to food and we should cut off all their natural gas and make sure that nobody has any fresh water and you know make sure that they can't drive and make sure they can't do this make sure that they all get triple jab for some new disease we're going to introduce so we can lock them down and put them into a cage and then we'll microchip them when they're in the cage so we can monitor what they're doing so that we can keep these rats working for our corporations forever at no charge. And this is the kind of stuff that's coming out of their mouth. One person yeah. after another, after another, after another, after another. They get up and say this kind of thing. So and you have we to could ask be yourself, in the middle of tribulation? No I'm, I, no, I'm not saying we're in the middle of tribulation. We're in the middle of Satan making war against the saints. Oh, okay. and, and they're at a point right now. I mean, look, we know, since we're talking about this. <laughs> We know that uh, the deaths from the jab are in, now in the millions. Yeah. Okay. And you have you have literally thousands of videos of people dropping dead right there on the spot, just dropping dead. They're standing there. The next thing you know, they're dead. Right? Have you seen these videos? Yeah. Sudden adult yeah, deaths. I know. <clears throat> okay. That's bad. That doesn't it's stop. Know. With with this kind of stuff happening, five year olds having heart attacks. Right. Myocarditis exploding, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, death rates are, you know, way up. And you, you see all this stuff. And yet here, the person that you supposedly elected to office, the following day gets up and stands up and says, don't forget to get your fourth booster. And then his corporate sponsor is saying, you know, Martha Stewart, anybody who's unvaxxed needs to be exterminated. Sean Penn, anybody who's unvaxxed needs to go to prison. Howard Stern, anybody who's unvaxxed needs to be put in prison. Right. Somebody said, oh, being unvaxxed is the equivalent of drunk driving. You're putting everybody at risk. Well, actually, that's not true. The hard facts are the vaxxed are the ones. Ninety two percent of the deaths in the UK from covid were of the triple vaxxed. Ninety two percent. And they shed. They shed that spike protein. And there's been recent discussion that shows what was it? The, the peer reviewed article that was published two days ago. Six billion spike proteins are in the average faxed person now. Six billion. They're shedding all over the place, and it is in every cell of your body. And so they have a thing that they call BAIDS, Vaccine Autoimmune Deficiency Syndrome, BAIDS. And people are dying from this. This was identified in the Netherlands a year ago. And yet, with all of these hard facts in front of you, you still have people standing up saying, you got to get jabbed or you can't go to work. We're going to make vaccines mandatory. The WHO has said, we're going to, we've passed a law that says you're not going to be able to travel on your passport without proof that you've been vaxxed. And now they're admitting that the scanning machines at the airport pick up your Bluetooth ID from your vax when you walk through it. Did you know that? Yeah, smart. Yeah. So, and you're trying to tell me that this is not the mark of the beast, right? That's, well, this can't be the mark of the beast just because you can scan it and just because you get a Bluetooth ID number and a barcode number that comes off when you're being scanned and just because it's mandatory and you're not going to be able to travel and you're not going to be able to purchase and you're not going to be able to go on the public square. That doesn't mean it's the mark of the beast. That's just a precursor to the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is going to be something more than that. What's it going to be? Something out of the Left Behind series that Nikolai Carpathia has to give to you? What are you talking about? How obvious does it have to be? You can't buy or sell. You can't travel. You can't function. You can't enter society. 
And there are people calling for your extermination if you're not chipped. Eh? Yeah. Okay. So are we in tribulation? No, we're not in tribulation because Yah's hand hasn't moved yet. But okay. what we do see is we see the precursor. Now, look, I'm just going to say this. You know that I've spent a lot of time talking about good things and not bad things because I want people, well, it's not my desire. I'm prayer, praying, praying that people will find happiness in this life and will have something to live for tomorrow to say, we, we think there's going to be a better world. There's a possibility of a better world. If there's a possibility of a better world, I'm going to talk about that. I'm not just going to talk about gloom and doom. If there's a possibility of a better world, I'll talk about it. If there's not a possibility of a better world, if you say we're in tribulation, well, before tribulation comes, first we have the destruction of Babylon, which will be destroyed in a single hour, and it will be destroyed by arrows whose archers will not miss their targets. Not a single target will be missed, according to Jeremiah. Their bows, their arrows will strike. Well, when you talk about arrow striking, I mean, look, let's, let's cut to the quick, okay? I'll just share this with you since you brought it up, Lynn. On January 11th, just a few, few days ago, right, 10 days ago, there was a shutdown in all the airports in the United States for two hours, right? Now, initially, my, my, my daughter and my grandkids were on a plane when that shutdown happened. They ended up sitting on the tarmac. What was that shutdown about? Was it a software glitch? Did something happen in, in Quebec that shut down air traffic control? Nope. That was a test of what they call the NATOM system. Now, the NATOM system is a system whereby the FBI or the FAA says, okay, all commercial air traffic has to be out of the air because we're going to launch all of our ICBMs and we don't want any commercial aircraft getting hit by one of our missiles. That's what that was. That was a test of the NATOM system. Now, day before yesterday, they put the continuity of government 747 in the air. So the government is now, we have the government flying around in the air in case there's a nuclear strike in the United States. They put the government up in a 747 and it stays up in the air refueling while they're during an emergency. So it's up in the air right now. Now, I can tell you that if we go into another NATOM emergency, if it's announced and Russia finds out about it, they're going to preemptively launch against the United States. Okay. That they watch the test. The next time it happens, Russia will launch because they know that the United States is going to launch. So Russia will launch. And if Russia launches, you're not talking about some little, hmm, looks like a bomb went off over in New Jersey. No, you won't be talking about that at all. You'll be talking about the top 100 cities in the United States going up in an inferno. Now, you might say to yourself, the top 100 cities, what's that mean? Topeka, Wichita Falls, uh, Lincoln, uh, Peoria, uh, Dayton. Try again. I challenge you right now, take out a piece of paper, write down the top 25 cities in the United States. The top 25. When you're done with the top 25, recognize that 75 more are going to be struck. Now, I have been screaming like a banshee on other channels, trying to warn people that they need to stop and stop right now. But do you think somebody who's engaged in trying to cover up their pedophilia 
who spends time on Thursday nights at a Masonic hall drinking blood in front of a witch? Do you think that that person has one ear that can hear, I'm about to destroy my own country in a nuclear holocaust? Do you think, they, do you think they're hearing this at all? They're hearing nothing, 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 zero. They hear nothing. And so we sit here and plead, we scream and yell, we contact, we, we, we send emails, we send text messages. You know, there's a group of us, you know, uh, Scott Ritter and, and uh, Scott Bennett and uh, me. And, you know, there's a number of us that have been trying to tell, trying to warn people, you need to stop, you need to stop, you need to stop, you need to stop. And instead of saying they need to stop, another 2.5 billion got earmarked for Ukraine today. Oh, there's not enough Ukrainian dead yet. We need more Ukrainian debt. And, and I'll tell you, the judgment on Ukraine is also coming because of what happened in World War II. They're being judged for what happened in World War II. But do you think I want to see more Ukrainian dead? I don't want to see any more damage in Ukraine at all. None. No more. I, mean, I, saw, I saw photos yesterday of a brand new Ukrainian graveyard, over 10,000 dead in it. Brand new. I mean, they had tents over the caskets. So all I can say to you is this, Lynn, is that we pray, I pray all the time that I'm dead wrong about my scriptural understanding, that instead peace is going to come upon the earth. But I'm not going to preach peace because that is false prophecy. There is no peace. Ein Shalom. There is no peace. And what we're looking at right now is we're looking at a very desperate and dangerous situation. And if I have my way about it, our leaders would repent. I mean, if I was going to say something to our leaders, it is this. Repent or Yahweh is going to turn your city into dust. Let me say that again. Repent or Yahweh is going to turn your city into dust. And let me say it again. Repent or Yahweh is going to turn your city into dust. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Dave, what have you got, buddy? Talking to me. Did you say David? Yes, I did. How's oh, it going? Hi, cool. cool. It's just uh y'all y'all gave me a, a chauffeur to sound. Uh and uh if I if I may have a, a little leeway to sound it because it's uh I've had it for some time, but it really came clear recently. When Yahweh puts the sickle in, that he talks about the sickle that he's going to harvest the earth. And then in Ezekiel, it talks about everyone that's not in, been circumcised is going to die. And uh, in Ezekiel, this is in like Ezekiel 31 through 33. He talks about the judgment of uh, what's going to happen. Now, <clears throat> that's amazing stuff because it lines up with... Uh, the Valley of, uh, of Jezreel, the Valley of Decision, mm -hmm. the, the uh, Armageddon. Well, the word arm is the same word as tell. And the same word as tell means civilization upon civilization. And there's, there's 26 civilizations that so far have been uncovered in the tells of Megiddo. And they also know after uncovering the civilizations that it started with the uh, Canaanites. That was the first ones. 
That turf over there is the most battled over turf of any turf in the world. And there's a whole lot of stories about what battles were there and what battles happened and how they came out because it's really interesting about Rehoboam's prophecies. This Valley of Decision is that Jezreel Valley. And when you look out across the Jezreel Valley, you're looking at what? You're looking at Asher. And then it talks about in Ezekiel 31 that Asher is higher than Mitzurim. It says it in, uh, in uh, 31, 31, 2, Ezekiel 31, 2. And, 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 then, and then it talks about the judgment of Asher first. And that's in... Uh, I think that's yeah, 31.3, behold, Asher was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and with a shadowing shroud and of a high stature, and his top was among the thick boughs. Water made him great, a deep set him up on a high, with the rivers running round, and his plants sent out her little rivers under the trees of the field. Therefore, his height was exalted above all the trees of the field, and his boughs were multiplied. And the multitude of waters when he shot forth and the fowls of heaven made their nest in his boughs and under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring forth their young. And under his shadow dwelt all great nations. Yes. Now, on that, that, they have to be taken down before Mitzurim, according to what I read in Ezekiel. And that's it's also at the time of the sickle comes in. But now, from, for, because the, uh, the Valley of Jezreel is civilization upon civilization, multitudes of multitudes in the Valley of Decision. We're talking about this has been going on for a long time and civilization upon civilization and the battles that have been fought there testify of it. But in the last time, in the last day, when the Uz Dominion manifests, he's going to put a sickle in and it's going to manifest in this way. It's going to have a, something to do with Asher. And one of the reasons that I've seen years ago that uh, they know now for sure that Shalom fortified uh, Megiddo for a buffer zone to Asher. And we know that Hezekiah dealt with the sovereign of Asher. And he was, he was, his, 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 uh, one of his main men that came up and was dealing with him was speaking in Hebrew tongue and, and trying to come against uh, uh, the validity of Hezekiah and, and Yeshiah. Well, <clears throat> that, didn't, that didn't work, praise you, but nevertheless, the issue is, is that that sign is still in the earth. And the sign that, uh, that uh, the Jezreel Valley is going, to, uh, is going to be a type and a shadow of it. And one of the reasons that the Damascus that now is, is, is the seat, and there's, there's a lot of scripture behind that, is the seat of the sovereign of Asher. And it has to fall. Now, let's take a look. At it. Well, now, hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. David, just a second. I don't want to argue. Hold on, hold on. I got this to Harold, and I'm going to Harold it. All right. The... Uh, the the uh, the sovereign of uh, Asher seated in in Damascus may not be uh, the Damascus spoken of that you're pointing at is Qumran. That that I, I see that, 
and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna come against that at all. What I'm saying is is that who controls Asher now with Bashar al-Assad under his thumb? It is the Persians. Russia bailed on uh, on Assyria and went to the to, to fight and is in that battle with uh, that, that 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 it's gonna it's gonna reveal that that red that that great sword we're seeing that happen but also Persia is at, at the throttle in Syria and Bashar al-Assad is hushed up sit sit and look at it so now so now if we have to see that all of a sudden we have the Persians setting up as the authority in Syria. Now, where the the the, the Yehuda that is veiled, sure enough, veiled, and there's all kinds of situations that point to them. But that situation that uh, also, as far as I know, legitimizes them with that uh, Hars of Megiddo. The Hars of Megiddo point to the battle with the sovereign of Asher. And that is a big, big deal. And so when you when you see the horrors of Armageddon is, is stretched out over generation of generation, the blood that you see that's up to the bridles of the horses come from generations to generations to generations. Oh, okay, because very good. That battle has gone on from all these tells that are pointing at the tells of Har Megiddo, the battle of the horrors of Megiddo, the generations upon generations. And then when he puts the sickle in and harvests the earth, we're going to see that that battle with Asher falls first and then Mitzurim. And we're, and, and actually we're seeing that, that, that the stage set for that, when you start talking about there, that, uh, that the Saudi Arabian prince is fixing to be king is going to remove the authority of, of Persia over the Alaska mosque because he, his, 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 his guys in Mecca are saying Alaska is right down the road from Mecca and that Mohammed never did go to Yerushalayim. Right. And, and that's a big deal. When you're talking about the the yeah. fraud that's, go, that, that's occupying the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount is, has, if we're going to throw that out, which I'm not going to because it, it, it has too much imagery, the, the Mashiach is going to put his foot on the Mount of Olives. It's not going to be somewhere else. It's going to be the Mount of Olives sitting right there. And I know, after watching it, that that temple that they uncovered of Melech Zedek yeah, yeah. is there. And that's the one that's more ancient than the city of Dawid. Yeah, isn't that a mind-boggler, David? That that video it's, it's, was a mind-boggler. I've, I've looked into it. There's a lot of information on it now, and how much they date, and they and 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 Mount, and and that is a is a is really awesome. But when you start talking about well, now hold on. Let's the, let's just okay. Brief the rest I, of the Sabbath. I'm just I'm giving you I'm giving you, I'm just giving you the Megiddo the Megiddo story that points at the authenticity. Of the generations upon generations and the blood that comes up to the bridles of the horses. And you don't want to throw that out. It's a real big deal because yeah, yeah. the last battle is when he puts the sickle in. Yeah, right. I hear so you. Okay. Yeah. Now, thank you, David. But just for everybody's edification here in the group that haven't seen it, there is a group out of Israel, an archaeologist out of Israel that has released recently a new video 
talking about the discovery of yet another temple, a temple that predates Solomon's temple. Now, I'm of the conviction, David, that uh, the city of David is where Solomon's temple is. You know, I, I like Don Esposito's view on this, that, you know, that they found the, they found the old Solomon's temple down there, what they found, you know, with the Gihon Springs running through there, evidence of where they used to tie the animals, bloodletting areas, and so on and so forth. But this temple that they found that's down farther in the Hinom Valley, right? Uh, Hinom Valley, I think it is. They, but that they went farther down in the valley, or Hedron Valley, maybe that's it. But anyway, Hedron Valley. It's just right below David's, David's palace. It's yeah. Right, just right below it, actually. Off and they went side. down there, and they found, they found another temple. And the, this temple predates Solomon's temple. Hmm. And this is evidence, pretty good evidence, that in fact, uh, there was a temple, and the idea that there was a temple worship that consisted with the Torah, that predated even Abraham. So this is a very interesting concept, a very interesting idea, and that that this temple was the temple present where Melchizedek was, Melchizedek's temple, consistent with the practices of Solomon, although I don't think it had the Ark of the Covenant in it, but it did have other practices and from which David was actually anointed. So uh, it's quite a huge finding. You guys, if you're looking for this video, you can you can look it up, you can find it. Uh, about the about the new temple and a more ancient temple being discovered in Jerusalem. This is what David's referring to. Now your your uh your discussion here, David, about Tell being uh the, the layer of civilization one upon another upon another. You know, as one guy said one guy's cave was built on by another guy's shack. That shack was built on by another guy's house. That house was built on by another guy's village. That village was built on, built on by another guy's city. That city was built on, you know, and, and on and on it goes. Now, you know, Brad and I were at the, we're in the Valley of Armageddon, you know, we were traveling through Israel. And we stopped for talking with this contractor and we said, hey, what are you up to? He said, I'm building new houses. And, yeah, well, what do you want for those houses? Well, they're pretty expensive. They're houses with a view. Well, what's your view? The Valley of Armageddon, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm anxious to pick up one of those houses. You know, it's like I get a front hand seat, right? A front hand view. But you know, when you're talking about Iran and Syria, this is another critical point. I think it's a point that's worth that's worth discussing here, because we know that Iran now is moving uh, in a very very huge way. They've been kind of static for a long time, but now with the the purchase of 64 Russian Su-35s, they have. Uh, there's no possible way that Israel is going to be able to assert a no-fly zone over Iran or to re in fact, they're not even going to be able to go in there with their with their aircraft and have any meaningful, they're going to be dealing with some very serious fighter pilots on the other side. And Iran has also demonstrated uh, that they have, first of all, they have hypersonic weapons. Secondly, they have a tremendous arsenal of ballistic missiles and short-range missiles and Killer drones. If you recall, Barack Obama gave our our foremost drone technology to Iran back in 2010, I think, when he flew our top drone in and landed it in Iran and said, there you go. And they claimed it was quote unquote shot down, but it, it did a perfect landing. And so here we see Iran, Iranian drones are being used in Ukraine very effectively. They're called the Shahad, a suicide drone. And uh, so and Iran is testing its weapons in Ukraine. 
So now you have an arsenal that's being built there by Elam. And Elam, by the way, is also discussed in scripture. And I believe it's in, uh, in uh, 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 Hosea talking about the judgment that will come on Elam. But Elam is moving also against Israel. And this approach is coming and it's, and it's amassing quickly. And I think you're right. I think that whole area, the abandonment of Iraq, the destruction that we brought to Syria and Iraq, which was uh, reprehensible and uncalled for, that destruction now has left a vacuum that Iran is filling. And Iran is filling it with its weapons, with its ma machinations, with its machinery, with the intent that they have enough of a deterrent right now to keep Israel from doing any major serious strikes in Iran until they get to an actual confrontation of this is now war. And so that's pretty much where that is now. And, and, and thank you for bringing that up because we can't just sit here and look and say, gee, the war is going to be only, you know, Babylon's destruction. War will come to the Valley of Armageddon. It will come. Speaking to, speaking to the Moshe in Iran and yeah. why, why Moshe uh, uh, heard what Yahweh said and then told Haran and then Haran told uh, your children of Israel is one of the manifestations of now in Yahushua made in, uh, there's one made sovereign and priest in, in a, a chosen. And you may all prophesy one by one. Now, you may all speak uh, the word of Yahuwah, which has dominion in the earth. If you speak the word of Yahuwah and don't add to it or take away from it, is it, is that the reason why man, says, the earth was given to the children of Adam and Mashiach had to come as a son of Adam. Right. And, right. and right. then when it became one in the last Adam and he overcame the first Adam mm -hmm. and all in the first Adam die and all in the last Adam, there's going to be a test to stay to see if you stay in that, in that remnant. And the ones that the remnant of the 144,000, the remnant that have the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Yahushua, which is Yahuwah speaking through the mouth of a man, is given that dominion that's spoken of in the, hundred, in the 149th Psalm. It says, when it talks about uh, you have given, you, you have given, been given the authority to judge, to speak the judgment. Well, it's not our authority, it's his. And when the living word of Yahuwah comes through the son of Adam, which is the dominion on earth, and not a half-breed man is going to get it, not an uncircumcised Philistine is going to get it, because they're not of the last Adam. They're not pure enough to speak that living word. And that living word has to come forth from his, the, the redeemed and chosen, because it is his voice, and that will bring the dominion of Yahuwah and put that earth under Yahushua's feet and make him and make, make this thing come into the end. Now, that sickle that's put in is going to manifest that. And what you were talking about, Aaron, uh, uh, Moshe not speaking to, directly to him and then having to speak through and him being Elohim and the other one. Well, that's the whole deal is that, yeah. That was the first one that doesn't that doesn't perfect. This last one does, and it comes together in one chosen uh, member after another, which makes up the body of Messiah, 
that will put its foot on the mountains of the dominion of man, praise you. Or I, I, I get excited about this, forgive me. I just I just love the thinking that we're close to it, praise you. Or mm, I'm yeah. just excited. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm excited. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Stephen. Yeah, you bet, David. And you know, you mentioned Psalm 149 here. Let's listen to Psalm 149, verse 6. Okay. Good word for today. Okay. Let the high praises of El be in their mouth and a two edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. This honor have all of his Hasid. Hallelujah. Amen. And that's bringing the heat, praise you, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Okay, David. Well, thank you much, man. Thank you. Hey, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. All right, let's go to iPhone. iPhone, where you be? Shalom. Um, Dr. Pigeon, good show today. Is this Lori? Yep, this is Lori. Hi, Lori. Hi. Hey, um, I had an epiphany, and maybe I'm just a little slow, but I was at the gym yesterday, and one of the trainers had a big banner of the feathered serpent around the pole, you know, the ring. <laughs> and um, when you were talking today, it just dawned on me back um, with the Israelites. And now the ones, you know, for their sins and murmuring, they had snakes and they bit the ones that were in sin. And then for those that were bit, had to look upon the serpent. Well, the feathered serpent goes way back and it's on hieroglyphics. And it just seemed we are in a foreshadow. That was a foreshadow for what we're in now. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, it does. Very much so. Yeah. And I'm surprised you would find such a symbol in the gym, right? Jim's suffered under this, under this last protocol more than I think any other form of business. I mean, they really suffered, right? Being closed down all the time. It was like, oh, that's the place you're going to catch the diseases over at the gym, you know? Um, but yeah, that does make sense. I mean, there we are, that those that sinned would be caught with the snake bite. But I mean, you know, the thing is, when we talk about the snake bite, I really... You know, so many people have said, well, I was deceived. I was deceived. Well, of course, Revelation 18, 23 says by their, you know, you will be deceived by their pharmacia. You will be deceived by their pharmacia. That's what it says. But that's the deception that would come upon the earth would be the pharmacia. Well, okay. Well, now we have to, you know, we still have to, we, you know, we have to deal with what we're dealing with. And so, you know, as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the son of man was lifted up. And this is an important point because, you know, is the son of man still viable for those who have been bitten by the serpent? I think the answer is yes. The son of man is still viable for those who have been bitten by the serpent. I'm not going to foreclose Yah's mercy. I'm just not yeah. going to do it. Uh, but it was that had sin that got bit and then had turned to the pharmacia. I mean, if they hadn't sinned in the first place, they wouldn't have been bit. But then they had to turn to it. They're from one sin, they're turning to another sin because look where they have to turn to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. And then since David and you were just talking, I'm a little confused. If you could clarify, because 
in my mind, uh, the Sabatini Frankists are kind of, you know, not in the Orthodox Jews, but the Jews, the Muslims, and the Catholicism are kind of the same faith. So in my mind, but when you said Obama gave Iran uh, a drone, well, okay, so then that kind of screwed my mind up thinking, okay, so they're using the, Iran is on the same side as Russia. Is that correct? Yeah, they're allied with Russia. That's correct. So why would Obama give them a drone that would work against their agenda? That's well, my question. Because, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that a lot of people don't know. I mean, Jimmy Carter, when he was the president in 76 to 80, uh, Jimmy Carter is the one that, that, you know, undercut the Shah of Iran and allowed the radical Islamic uh, state to grow under Ayatollah Khomeini. And after Khomeini took office, Jimmy Carter gave him a printing press and the paper for making $100 bills. And Iran began printing hundreds of millions of $100 bills, most of which were used as currency in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The, uh, the, the Iran-Contra scandal had to do with the fact that George Bush, George H. Herbert Walker Bush, named after the owner of Auschwitz, that he went in and orchestrated a deal where he, he Ronald Reagan wanted that printing press back from Iran. And Iran said, okay, you can have it back, but we want 800 million in real cash, and then you can have the printing press back. So Bush went in and said, okay, we'll give you 800 million, print up 800 million of your counterfeit hundreds, they did, and actually, it was 1.2 million because Bush pocketed 400 million of it. Then he took the 800 million and he went to Panama. And uh, Manuel Noriega was the president of Panama at the time. And he went in and invaded the bank account of Escobar, the cocaine dealer out of Colombia, stole 800 million in cash from him to buy the Iranian printing press, put the 800 million in counterfeit 100s back in Escobar's bank account and reacquired the printing press from Iran. Now, Escobar found out about that. When Escobar found out about it, and Manuel Noriega found out about it, they both were threatening to go public. So Bush blew up Escobar and his whole family with a, with a hellfire missile from a drone, and then arrested Manuel Noriega, invaded Panama to arrest Manuel Noriega and put him in a prison where he could never be heard from anybody ever again. And that's where he, he's currently rotting in prison and no one's ever talked to him because again, he's not allowed to speak. So there were lots of shenanigans going on with Iran. And when Obama gave the drone to Iran, he did it. First of all, you have to remember, Obama hates the United States. His published study that he published in 1988 when he was at Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow was how to overthrow a democratic government and create a communist regime. And it was done to, it was supposed to happen in Africa, but he brought it back to the United States and after he got elected in the United States, he engaged on a protocol that was written by the Muslim Brotherhood. It's published. And in fact, I have the protocol in, um, what book did I publish that in? I don't remember now. But anyway, it's published. And this, this particular protocol was how you overthrow the United States by economic means. So you had, first of all, you had 9-11, but then you had, thereafter, it was no longer a military war, but an economic war. And Obama was the tool of that economic war to overthrow the United States from the inside. And he did. He spent eight years destroying the economy of the United States. 
And now with the Biden administration, he's back in control and is doing the same thing. Now, look at the destruction that he's brought to the American economy in two and a half years. Look at what he's brought. It's right here. You can see it front and center. And it's because Obama is fundamentally a Muslim. He's a Muslim Brotherhood member. He was a direct funder of, of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and other terrorist groups in the 1990s. He had a direct interface with Osama bin Laden in the 1980s through his mother, through Lahore, Pakistan. He gave the Muslim confession of faith in Arabic to the New York Times in 2007, the Shahada Dan. He claimed, told George Stephanopoulos that he had a Muslim faith. He wore a ring that had the, that had the, uh, Bismillah on the ring that he wears instead of a wedding ring. And people said that I was a radical for saying that Obama was a Muslim. Are you kidding? He's Obama is one step away from being a Hafez who can give you the Quran in Arabic from memory. Okay. He was, that was his goal as a child to become a Hafez. He spoke to the Muslim Brotherhood in April of 2009 in Egypt and told them in Arabic, I am one of you. Then he engaged in the Arab Spring and installed a Muslim Brotherhood member as the head of Egypt, who was since deposed and now sits in prison for treason because he was working on behalf of Obama. Obama has always been at war with the United States and was very successful in an eight-year period of time in inflicting, really, uh, sickness unto death into the United States. That's what he did. And when, with the election of Joe Biden, who everybody knows is suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's, really can't find his way back to the White House, the White House is being controlled by Obama. This is Obama's third term, and he is waging war against the United States again. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. So, uh, you know, uh, and just because uh, Iran and Iran was not as allied with Russia as they are now, but because People have come out and said, we're going to bomb Iran. Netanyahu has stopped with nonstop rhetoric. I'm going to bomb Iran, bomb, 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 bomb Iran. The more you say that stuff, the more you drive Iran away from your character and Iran moves to where it's going to be able to survive. And its number one patron has been Russia. And now Russia has come to them point blank and said, oh, yeah, we'll help with anything you need. <clears throat> well, is there, still, is there still a relationship with Obama and some of these in, in Iran? Uh, there is in Iran. Uh, no, probably not. You have to remember that Obama, he gave them 800 million in cash, plus all this other stuff in, in digital currency, ended all the sanctions, freed up all the money in their bank accounts, all in furtherance of this so-called nuclear deal, which then Trump reversed. But the 800 million he gave them in cash never got to Iran. It was in multiple currencies. It ended up in a warehouse in London under the control of none other than Chelsea Clinton. It never made it to Iran, never got there. So, uh, you know, so, but Obama's connections inside the Muslim Brotherhood, and a lot of them have faded because a lot of those guys died. You know, these guys are all getting up in age now. Uh, and of course, one of the big deaths that really killed Obama's connection was Sheikh bin Talal. And Sheikh Walid bin Talal was his name. And he was the guy who became a multi-billionaire connected to the Saudi family in the early 70s and then became a major financier. And he was financing things, including the CIA. He financed Operation Pegasus in 1978, which began to massage a Muslim candidate for president, which turned out to be a guy named Barry Satoro, that took on the fake name Barack Hussein Obama. Never legally adopted the name. He just took it. He took the name. And they they paid for a fake Columbia, law, uh, Columbia degree. And then Sheikh bin Talal put $25 million into Harvard 
to get Obama into Harvard Law School. And the woman who took the money from Sheikh bin Talal for an Arab study center at Harvard and admitted Barack Obama to the law school is Elena Kagan. She's now a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, my and, gosh. Oh, yeah. And so uh, this and so Sheikh bin Talal was the chief funding agent. And he was working with a guy named uh, uh, um, Khalid. Uh, what was his name? Don Borden was his real name, but he took on a Muslim name. He was a guy that was instrumental in the assassination of Malcolm X. And uh, he had uh, he knew Obama from the time Obama was a baby and knew that Obama was actually the child of Adolf, the grandson of Adolf Hitler. And he wanted to bring his pedigree forward. And so Walid uh, Ben Talal agreed that he was the guy. So they funded all of this stuff. And then Ben Talal was also part of he was interfaced with the with the Bin Laden family and the Bin Laden family were very close supporters of H.W. Bush. Okay, H.W. In fact, there are many members of the Bin Laden family that were put on a private jet on the September 12, 2001, and shipped out of the United States following the destruction of the World Trade Center to protect that family it was the Bin Laden family because they were friends of the Bush family. Well, in 1991, a deal was made between George Bush using what's called the Carlisle Group, which was a group of investors and lawyers uh, surrounded from what used to be H.W. Bush's cabinet, that were in direct interface with their top clients, who were Saudis, and they made a deal. And the deal was that George Bush, who had a 92% approval rating at that time, having won the war in Iraq, that he would lose the election in 92, and he would give it up to a Democrat in order to bring Democrats back to power because the Republicans had been in power for 12 years at that point. And if they succeeded to go to 16 years, there wouldn't be any Democrat bureaucrats capable of running the executive branch. So they agreed they were going to put a Democrat in power. So he put his son-in-law, Bill Clinton, it's a son-in-law through a different relationship, which I won't explain now. But Bill Clinton was his drug running captain that was running all of the cocaine for the Bush cartel out of Columbia through Panama in through Mina Air Force Base in Arkansas. And Bill Clinton was, Bill and Hillary were the ones handling all that. And uh, Bill Clinton would be elected president for eight years. And George Bush said, okay, I'll step down and we'll put this Democrat in here for eight years on the condition that my son becomes president for eight years. And so that was agreed upon. But then the Saudis came back and said, on the condition that after your son is president for eight years, we'll put a Muslim in president in there for eight years. So all of that was oh, the three presidents, Clinton, Bush and Obama, were all agreed upon in 1991. This was all agreed in 1991. And H.W. Bush is the one who made the agreement. And the intention was after Barack Obama was gone, that Hillary Clinton would be the president. And Donald Trump was the one who broke that. And he broke it. He just came in with a, with a sledgehammer and just smashed it uh, and broke that broke that idea, attacking the Bush family outright. And the Bush family got him back. They impeached him twice and then kicked him in the face. And, you know, he'll never be back in power. So with that, you can see that. And then Sheikh bin Talal. Here's what happened to Sheikh bin Talal. So Sheikh bin Talal is still in the, process, in the process of making the presidency on behalf of the Bush cartel. He was the Saudi money behind the Bush cartel making the presidency. And then something happened in Saudi Arabia. The king died and this young prince uh, named Ben Salman uh, asserts himself as king. And a very aggressive guy, probably illegally in office, probably usurped the office in Saudi Arabia. But he makes himself king. Well, Ben Talal, who, by the way, was co-partners with Bill Gates, uh, owning 
of Four Seasons hotels in the country. They're co-partners. They owned four of the most prestigious floors at the Four Seasons Hotel in Las Vegas. And they heard that Ben Talal was arriving in Las Vegas. And so they put a sniper in the hotel room that was owned by Ben Talal in the up, one of the upper floors of that hotel to sniper and kill Ben Salman. And then the whole concept was, we're going to sniper and kill Ben Salman. And then we're going to put on this terrorist event that we're going to have people shooting up a concert and pretend that it was some lone gunman up in, up in the hotel room that was that killed all these 55 people at this concert. Now, that took place on October 1st, 2017, exactly eight days after Lynn's date of, of September 23rd, 2017. So we had the sign in the heavens. But remember that a, when a, a male is born, the male cannot be presented until the eighth day because the woman is unclean. So the eighth day would have been Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was a blood sacrifice. And the blood sacrifice was intended to be Ben Salman. But Ben Salman escaped the assassination attempt. He had four bodyguards with him. And there's videos of him running through the hotels, escaping the gunfire. The, gun, the, the so-called lone gunman up in the top of the, uh, of, the, of the Four Seasons Hotel belonging to Ben Talal, well, they broke in there and killed him. And he was supposedly killed 55 people with this lone gunman. There were three spent shell casings on the ground. Three spent shell casings. I don't know how you kill 55 people with three spent shell casings. But there's videos of guys running through the crowd at that concert with Uzis firing, right? And these guys that were doing this, that were doing the shooting were ISIS members, not from the Middle East, but ISIS members, Muslim extremists from the Philippines that did the shooting. I mean, I'm just giving you guys the briefing of what happened here. And so you don't, leave, you don't want to leave out the association with the World Economic Forum and how much Nazi they are. And how much Nazi uh, the head of the forum is, uh, uh, Lord Rothschild, his daddy was the banker for the Nazis, uh, for, the, for the German Nazis. And the reason he didn't get hit, he didn't get hung at Nuremberg is because he was handling the money. That's right. That's his exactly right. His daddy yeah. is Nazis, all Nazis. Oh, yeah. And, and it's, so, it's a spirit so, that we're dealing with. Oh, yeah. So what happens to Sheikh bin Talal because he missed in assassinating Ben Salman. Ben Salman was an ally of Donald Trump. Donald Trump went to Ben Salman and said, we know where Ben Talal is. Ben Salman arrested Ben Talal, sh shipped him back to Saudi Arabia and hung him from his feet in the palace and said, okay, give up all your money. So after, I, th I don't know, it was 17, 18 days he was hanging from his feet. Ben Talal transfers all of his billions to Ben Salman. And then Ben Salman left him hanging there. He left him hanging there until he died. There was no food, no nothing. He, he died hanging from his feet in a, in a room in Saudi Arabia. That's what happened to Bin Talal. Now, when Bin Talal died, Obama's backer, Obama's main funding agent, is gone. You see, that guy died. That guy died. So with this, with this being said, and then, of course, then Ben Salman catch, catches this journalist that's criticizing him. In, in Istanbul and has him sawed alive with a, with a power saw. He was laying on a table alive and they sawed him up with a power saw. Hashidi. So, I mean, this, you know, I mean, this is not good for Sabbath day, but I'm, but I'm just trying to share with you what went on. So when you know the whole story, when you see the whole story about what was happening, the kind of, and you, and you got to keep in mind, 
that H. Walker, W. H. W. W. Bush, that is, this is a pseudonym. That's not his real name. He was born George Scherf. He was a, he was born into a Nazi family. His father was, was Prescott Scherf, who was also a Nazi. I have a picture of him sitting in his house in Germany with Joseph Mengele, with Otto Skorzynski, with Martin Borman, with Richard Galen. They're sitting in the living with, with Mama Bush, right? And when he came to the United States, his father was a professional assassin for the Nazis who was assassinating people in Hong Kong in the 30s. When they came to the United States, they came to the United States with the intent of taking German money and housing it in a U.S. bank in the event that they lost the war, they would not be able to raid the bank like they did Deutsche Bank after World War I. So they put Prescott Bush here. Prescott Bush opened a bank called Union Bank, which is still open right now. And he was the head of Union Bank that financed this company. Uh, the company is called, hold on just a minute. Let me think of the name of the company. I got to remember it. Uh, this was the company that developed uh, the Zirklon B gas that was used at Auschwitz, okay, uh, uh, E.G. Farben. E.G. Farben went without prosecution uh, following World War II. E.G. Farben then became what is now called BASF, the largest in chemical industrial uh, manufacturer in Germany. And they also became Bayer Pharmaceutical and Pfizer Pharmaceutical, E.G. Farben the company that financed the gas for Auschwitz, the owner of Auschwitz, the guy who owned the concentration camp, his name was Herbert Walker. So when George Scherf was adopted by Sam Bush in the United States, along with his father, he took the name George Herbert Walker Bush in honor of the man who owned Auschwitz. The man who designed Auschwitz called the architect was a guy named Carl Rovener, the grandfather of Karl Rove, the political advisor to G.W. Bush, who called himself the architect. Prescott Bush would, would later be indicted for funding the Nazis during World War II and convicted. And as a result of his conviction for funding the Nazis in World War II, he was made a senator. Then his son went on to work his way through the OSS, which was an intelligence organization that was completely staffed by former Gestapo members of the Third Reich, that became the CIA, whose allegiance has always been to the Vatican, the Knights of Malta, the Jesuits, and the, the, the Reich. That is our CIA. And George Bush worked his way up through the CIA and became the head of the CIA under LBJ because of the work he did in Dallas in November of 1963, when he was filmed standing at the doorway of the book depository in Daly Plaza on November 27th, 1963. Does this start to add up to everybody? You see what oh, happened? Yeah. Yes. And I see how countries are overthrown, like Gaddafi, what they did to him. If everybody loved him, all those people that were supposed to protect him and his people were all bought and sold. And that's how they got a hold of him. It is just, it's sickening. Abba needs to come back because there's, it's, it's sickening. Yeah, it's, it's horrific what we have seen. And the, the difficulty here in the United States is that the media now is not the media at all. They're just propagandists. And in fact, 
we don't even know if there's even real people over there. They could all be CGI and it's all coming out of the CIA. It, but, you, but you don't have anybody telling you anything. You don't have anybody telling you the truth. That's a certainty. I mean, there's just no truth being told anywhere. And we have a country that has become completely 100% corrupt. It's 100% corrupt. It and, has been. Yeah. It has been. It's yeah, just manifesting completely now. It's just out of the box, and they don't care how out of the box it is. They don't care anymore. That's right. I mean, when they're when they're openly publishing on the government's website, these are the pilots that are hitting you with chemtrails. They're openly publishing this, right? And they're you know, and now you have a situation where the president of the United States can put classified documents in in his private building. And those classified documents were available for inspection. And then he receives, his son receives millions of dollars from the Chinese after they've reviewed those documents. And nobody- They're going to throw him under the bus, Steve. They're going to throw him under the bus. And it's setting up right now. And it's going to be more deceitful because right now it's not deceitful enough. Master said, be, be cautious. It's going to be real deceitful here now. And that's not deceitful. It's just right smack on the table. I believe we're fixing to see the worst deceit that's ever happened. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. and it's going to lead up to it's going to lead up to some really separating of some uh, of some folks. A lot of people are going to run to that deceit going, oh, look at him. And they're yeah. going to say, yeah, that's the one. That's the man. Yeah. Oh, forgive me for interrupting. No, no, no. Advice. I mean, this is the great deception, David, that we're talking about. Because this great deception is going to come is a great deception that is designed to that even the elect will be deceived, right? This is how the scripture exactly. says the elect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Well, John, what have you got to say there, brother? I know nothing. I see nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, mega mega dittos, actually mega dittos. And uh, but anyway, um, there's an interesting passage in uh, <clears throat> Exodus seven verse one, and <clears throat> it's saying something very interesting. That let me find it. It's Yah talking to Moses, Moshe. And Yahuwah said to Moshe, see, I have made you an Elohim to Pharaoh. <clears throat> and that, that God is in little g. In many of other translations, that word God in the English is in large g well i got suspicious about this some time ago and and this this reflects i believe on two things about egypt one the political situation that was created when moses showed up he was supposed to be dead and also it impacts their religious beliefs about religious beliefs around the Pharaoh himself. <clears throat> that little G, little, little Elohim, is a, a god of Egypt. 
I have made you a God of to Pharaoh, a God that Pharaoh would look at you and say, oh my God, there's another God, because the Pharaoh was God in their religion. The royal family and the members were gods. So how is it that Yah made Moses as a God to Pharaoh? It's because he was adopted as a royal son, prince of Egypt, by Pharaoh's daughter. She made him. Yeah, 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 yeah. See that? So <clears throat> Pharaoh would not care about the God they call Yahweh. He, he said, I don't care about your God. Who's that? You know, so, but I also had this question before, and this sort of answers it. Why didn't Pharaoh just kill Moses and Aaron, get rid of him, and go on his business as usual? <clears throat> because when he showed up, they there were people still alive in Egypt who knew Moses as the prince of Egypt and therefore part of their deity legitimately because of his mother. Now, this, this thing, Pharaoh's daughter is, Pharaoh had a lot of daughters, right? Because he had a lot of concubines. <clears throat> but that title, Pharaoh's daughter, is only applied to one of these kinds of daughters. And that's the daughter of Pharaoh with the great wife, who was usually the sister. Mother, um, brother, sister combination. Okay, so that's in their mythology. That's in their religion. So when Moses walks in the court, <laughs> the people in the court, now there's something else about this Pharaoh that Moses faced. By the time Moses came back, the Pharaohs from that time, from before that time, were not royal bloodline Pharaohs. They were commoner Pharaohs. So Moses is standing in the court of a Pharaoh who is a commoner Pharaoh, which everybody else in the court knows that Pharaoh is not of the bloodline of the commoner of the royal family. But Moses was of the bloodline because of the adoption of the Pharaoh's daughter who pulled him out of the river because she was of the bloodline. So he's, Moses is really, think about this. Moses is really the only person standing in the court who, according to the religious beliefs of Egypt at the time, is the only God because of the bloodline connection to his Pharaoh's daughter and mother. Now, he's also a Hebrew. So this creates a horrible problem for Pharaoh. Moses has instantly, as a leader, the slaves has a three million person army. <laughs> it's a terrible political situation in that scene, and it remains so. But the Pharaoh made a mistake because he's thinking that Moses is challenging him politically, and it's not. Moses is the guy that's probably, we could describe Moses as the rod, the rod. He doesn't have a rod. Aaron has the rod. But Moses is the rod of Yahweh. He's the one telling 
Aaron what to do with that rock. So there's there's this wonderful picture. <laughs> it's one of these backstories. And and that verse, that verse, there's only three people that know would know what that verse means. One is Moshe, the other is Yahweh. And the other guy that's gonna know is Pharaoh. The rest of us don't know because we don't know their religion. But you can go Google this stuff about their religion, not about Moses. The Egyptology people don't. They think Moses is a myth. And uh, But there was a Pharaoh's daughter that they tried to make disappear. They chiseled everything they could, could of her name off the stones. But they didn't, they didn't get it all. And uh, she was, she was the last of the royal bloodline. So that's probably there's a good chance that that woman was was the pharaoh's daughter. She's the pharaoh's daughter who became a pharaoh herself, a female pharaoh. Right. She was a pharaoh for a while, right? Yeah, and the. Uh, the Egyptologists um, and archaeologists right. think that that the erasure of her name was was a uh, chauvinist kind of thing. You know, how people think these days that the Egyptians did never never wanted another female to rise to the point of Pharaoh, so they wiped her name out. Well, if they wiped her name out, they didn't do a very good job because they weren't wiping her name out, they were wiping off the name of Moses in connection with her. Right. Once they heard that he's alive through the caravans, he's herding sheep down in Midian, <laughs> they got scared and they wiped his name out. But Yah came to Moses one day and said, hey, that, those people over there in Egypt, they're trying to kill you, they're dead. I got a new job description for you. You're going back. <laughs> so I, I think John, John, I think he's, I think that, that, uh, that, that lady's name was Hapshetsut. Hapshetsut. I can remember her. correctly. Yeah, that's probably and then who I think it was. It's possible, you know, what you just mentioned is why they actually erased her is because of these commoner pharaoh that came in who did not know Moshe. Because it That's wasn't right. long. It was only what forty years or something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it wasn't she, long. She died. She died um, before Moses was exiled. And uh, the Pharaoh on the throne that would have followed her uh, was Thutmose um, the Third. And uh, he died. When he died, Moses was able to go back. Thutmose the third was a was a protege of Moses. Moses was older. And I think Hatshepsut. I mean, this is just my thinking. Hatshepsut because she was the last of the bloodline, the the true bloodline of the pharaohs. She wanted to raise him up as her son and the legitimate pharaoh. So he was a definite threat because he was, if, if she was the, 
the mother, he was a direct line to the Pharaoh because she was a Pharaoh. That terrified them politically. And he also had, you know, there's a, a passage that says so a couple things. You know, you got a couple of anomalies. One is, is that Moshe had a Cushite wife. I forget where it says this was with Devarim, but he had another wife besides the wife, the Midianite that he married. He right. had a Cushite wife, and he was a king in Cush. Okay. And this means that he was he was a very powerful political leader before his exile. He wasn't yeah. just he wasn't just you know uh, Tom Dick and Harry or some guy running around like uh, like you see in the, in the Ten Commandments. No. Gee, I found my Hebrew people. Let me go put on a colored coat. He was he was a powerful general, a powerful you know what they were calling a king, and was controlling major armies. In fact, Alan Wilson, Baron Black, I think not only did he fight in in Cush, but that he also fought in Canaan. He fought against the Hittites. So that, but when you come to when it come when it comes time for them to leave to go for the land of, of promise, he knew exactly where it was. He knew how to get there, and he knew what they were gonna what they were gonna face. He knew the he knew the whole situation. Yeah. But you had a bunch of people who had been farmers, sheep herders, who didn't know what it was to be in an army and fight. Well, you're going to need to be an army and fight because we have to go up against these giants. Uh, well, that's too much for us. They're big. Uh, we don't want to well, do that. Some, yeah, there's some evidence in the Egyptian records. Um, the way the way the rulers, the pharaohs, <clears throat> handed over their their control of things to their uh, heir. The older pharaoh would sort of retire to dealing with domestic issues in the government, in the country, in the nation, in the empire. And the upcoming younger one, the prince, to be pharaoh would, would be in the military and be dealing with foreign affairs in the, in the nations that were uh, tributaries to Egypt. That's why you have often, you see these stone carvings of two, two guys, two pharaohs. The one in the front is the, the, the living pharaoh and the one in the back is the upcoming military commander. But it's not just military, it's the foreign affairs versus the domestic affairs because the older one is now old they don't want to go out on campaign very much. So they raise up the little one, the younger one, to be trained up to command the armies. And that was as far as Moses got because uh, she died. Yeah. Just because he was a Hebrew. He, he Hebrew. Well, he's a threat. Yeah, fascinating. It's a fascinating history. And of course, you know, you know, like most historians, they look back at Egypt and go, okay, that's a mess. You know. That, that whole record is a hot mess, but what do we know about it, you know? And, uh, but we're now deciphering it. And of course, scripture is our guideline. So we yeah. hold up scripture to it, and then we hold the other history to that scripture to see what fits and what doesn't. And we see something quite interesting about Moshe, you know? Yeah, what, there, is a, there is a book out there called uh, The Woman Who Would Be King about Hatshepsut. It's written by a very... Um, Smart Egyptologist, archaeologist, archaeologist, woman in uh, I think Southern Cal, somewhere over there in California. But she really knows what she's talking about. Um, 
about her studies about this woman. And uh, anybody wants to get that book, it, it fills in that gap between what the scriptures say and, and what, what- The woman who would be king is the name of the book? Yeah, I think the author is, uh, um, well, I, don't, I can't remember. Um, Kara, somebody. Kara Cooney. Kara Cooney, that's her. Yeah, Kara Cooney. Uh, C-O-O-N-E-Y. Yeah, she's an amazing person herself. She's remarkable. It's not Bithia either. Bithia is not, Bithia is later. Um, no, I just, I put up the name of the book in the chat for anybody who's interested in picking up that book. Yeah, woman it really fills in. It tells you something about this woman because here's another couple of things that, that she fills in. She disobeyed her father, Pharaoh by saving a Hebrew child. And the midwives also disobeyed that same mm -hmm. Pharaoh mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by not killing the male uh, babies. <clears throat> so who is that Pharaoh that can't control this situation? Well, that would be Hatshepsut's father, who was Thutmose the first, who was the first commoner Pharaoh. But her mother, was a full-blooded royal. Her mother was. So Hatshepsut saw the end of the bloodline, and I think this is what's going on, and, mm -hmm. and decided to do something about it. She obviously didn't like the slavery thing any more than the, the uh, midwives do, did. So there's the real political situation starting with this family. The, the remarkable thing about all this and even the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph is like two Pharaohs up, a guy named Amos the first. If you get into this, this side story of the, what was going on in the secular world, which is really critical to understanding a lot of things. But, but Yah, Yahweh is controlling all of this. Hatshepsut, Karakuni writes, it's, on, it's cut into stone. She was uh, a high priestess in the temple of Amun, Amun-Ra. <clears throat> so was her mother before her. And, and Kuni talks about what does that mean? But Hatshepsut had cut into stone a dream that she had that she was born for a special purpose in life. And that, that God was gonna reveal that to her. It's all in stone down there in Egypt. Now, she's, she, Amun-Ra is the equivalent creator god of the Egyptians as Yahweh is of the Hebrews. Now, he's a creator god. So these are synonymous. It was, God did probably give her a dream, but she had the All wrong right. name. Yeah, but now, but, now, but now here you are, John. When you go back to Exodus 6-2, and Elohim spoke to Moshe and said, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov by El Shaddai. Yeah. And I think it reads, by El Shaddai and my name, Yahweh. Yeah, probably. But I was yeah. not known to these guys. I was not known to these guys. See, I think that's where, I think that's where the scripture is kind of confused in that text. I wasn't known to them, the Egyptians. I wasn't known yeah. to these guys, right? So they're talking about all this other stuff. 
Moshe had to ask him, what's your name? Who am I going to tell I'm coming back? Because he's been brainwashed with Egyptian deities in the Egyptian mm -hmm. religion. Mm -hmm. He was he was not schooled in the in the mud pits, okay? So he was a prince of Egypt. He had the fantastic education that anybody could have before he got exiled and the other story, the other Moses showed up, see? But this is incredible because when you step back and look at this whole picture, including the royal families of Egypt, you can see God's, Yahweh's hand is in even the birth of this little girl who defied her father. And what an amazing, what an amazing Yah we have. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is so true. It is so true. And that, of course, he, he orchestrated these events really to the minute, right? To the decision, to the minute, to the hour, to the day, yeah. perfectly, and knew of its occurrence when he gave the dream to Abraham. Yeah, yeah. He knew this, he knew the beginning from the end at that point. Yeah, remarkable, John, absolutely remarkable. Really neat. And so the, the, the main thing is that it was Yah coming against the gods of Egypt, these false deities and this false religion and this fake thing that's going on in Egypt that enslaved these people. And he was coming against that and totally, totally destroyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I love this well, story. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for his hand to move in the modern world, if you know what I mean. Amen. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Okay. Catherine. Catherine Wilmot. Hello, Stephen. I wanted to follow in from John, and then I wanted to give um, a scripture of hope for the nuclear and the WEF. Okay. John, there is a staff of Moshe. It was found in the snake tomb outside Petra. It was going to be transported to the US, but that never happened. And it's sitting in a Birmingham museum. Hello? Amazing. Yeah, it's sitting in a Birmingham museum. What I will do is I think I gave Stephen the um, information about two years ago. Um, but I'll try and dig out and research it again because I've misplaced the information. But I thought it might be of interest to you. Very, very, but yeah. It's a, it, yeah. But um, the actual um, rod didn't end up in America. It ended up in Ireland and then yeah. coming back to Britain. Because actually the rod went on the Titanic, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Yeah. But yeah, um, he... I'll see if I can try and find that information. A film was done about it by an historian. So I'll see yeah. what I can do. Right. Egypt, Egypt, wound, up, can... Egypt hey? wound up in America. <laughs> <laughs> it nearly, no, well, well the, the rod of Moshe nearly wound up in America, but it didn't. 
it went on the Titanic and the family went, um, the family got off in Ireland, they only did a short trip on the Titanic. But I'll see if I can find that information and then Stephen can pass it on to you. Sure, thank you. Okay. And then I don't know what happened to Stephen. I don't know when he went to get a cup of coffee, but I've got a scripture I'd like to share when he's back. Or can I share? I might as well share it now whilst he's gone to get a coffee. Yes. Basically, if we look at Exodus, the promise of um, Ephraim and Manasseh, now, Manasseh was, it's been said that it's American, Ephraim's Britain. Now, with the promises in Genesis 48, even though we've got, obviously, the threat of the U.S. government and nuclear war, and in Britain now, I've just seen an article that the British government will head the countries with the WEF. I believe that with Yah's grace and his mercy and everything, his people will, will, will survive. Those who love him with all his heart. I hope you're right about that, Catherine. Uh, I am. I mean, you just look at that young Japanese girl who ran from the nuclear site. She survived and she ended up in America. And I think Yah will have mercy on, on the people that love him the most. The people that truly love him, like you said, repent, Stephen, earlier on. And yes, our, our politicians might be pharaohs like you were talking about. History repeats itself in funny, strange ways. But I'm convinced that it doesn't matter where we are, with Yah's mercy, we are under his wings. So I just want to give everybody a, a bit of hope. Hey? Got a verse for us today? I think it's Genesis 48, the blessings of... Um, Ephraim and um, Manasseh. Is it 20 to 22? Can somebody read that? Yeah, I can Sorry, I haven't got my favor with me. Well, that's well, three demerits, that. Catherine. Right? No suffer with no suffer with you. That's three demerits. No, it's up, up there. <laughs> it's up there. <laughs> yeah, and, and so here you see in in 48, your citation was right, Genesis 48, 20. And he blessed them that day, saying, In you shall Yasharel bless, saying, Elohim, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Yasharel said unto El Yosef, Behold, I die, but Elohim shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you to you one portion above your brethren, which I took out of the hand of the emery with my sword and with my bow. So, well, thank you for this blessing, Catherine. It is, it is a good blessing. And I, want, and I have to tell you, look, I was praying this morning, you know, I was thinking about, okay, what if destruction comes to London? 
you know, I mean, are we going to lose uh, St. Paul's Cathedral? Are we going to, are we going to lose, um, you know, many of the artifacts? Are we going to lose um, 10 Downing Street? Are we going to lose Trafalgar Square? Are we going to lose Piccadilly Circus? Are these the things going to go away? Yeah. I had a vision the square mile and I'm sticking by that. I mean, if we lose the others, we lose the others. But um, yeah, I'll, I've got to move quickly for you, Stephen, to get all those um, manuscripts. I mean, the way I look at it, if, if I'm sort of down London way and anything happens while I'm doing stuff for you and collecting everything for you, when my time's up, I'm being called home. And I'm, why should I fear? I'm not going to fear. It's a beautiful statement, Catherine. And thank you for saying that today. Because we, mm. we, all face, we all face things we have to do now on behalf of the kingdom. And as we do these things on behalf of the kingdom, we have to recognize, you know, we could lose our life at any time. Mm. But if we're I mean, some, lose- some will get slain. Some will have their heads chopped off. And if I go, I go. I mean, I'm going anyway. We're all going. Each day passes. So why fear? And the, and the great beauty the is... The thing we've got to fear is Yahuwah. Because we have got to love him with every fiber of our being. We were then. Yeah. Well, I mean, you. I make mistakes on a daily basis. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, made, I made a mistake one time. I just I know, I just know, Yah has mercy and forgiveness. But um, people don't, which is very sad. <laughs> yeah, we cannot forget his mercy and his, and his loving kindness, you know, his nature, his compassion. I mean, we were talking about this last night. Yah's, in, in Yah's creation of mankind, mankind was created out of love. That's why mankind was created. And for that purpose, mankind was created. It was born out of Yah's love that we might return that love to Yah. That's what it's all about. That's the whole nature of mankind on this in, mm. in this existence. And what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. You know? Nothing. So, you know, so you have to learn how to love Yah with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to just, we just proceed, you know. And I want to thank mm-hmm. you, Catherine, for the work you're doing. It's, it's, and the group, you know, the art group. You guys are doing such remarkable work. I mean, we practically answered every question. We're running out of questions. Oh, I've got another one for you. I'll give you the date of the Red Dragon. Oh, Okay. 1959. No possible way. Yes, and it was recognized by QE. 1959. Uh, It wasn't a flag of the Welsh. It was a war flag in ancient times to scare the Saxons (laughs) because they had... (laughs) A white dragon. <laughs> well, okay. The questions have been answered. Okay, but if that's what Catherine and I have been looking at the idea of the Welsh flag and whether or not because the Welsh flag has a dragon on it. And when you look at the at the Union Jack, 
The Union Jack has the cross of St. George, and it has the cross of St. Andrew for Scotland and the cross of St. Patrick for Ireland. But the Welsh have no accommodation on the flag. And they tell you, oh, that's because the Welsh flag is the red dragon. Now Catherine has found that the red dragon wasn't even adopted until 1959. So we're finding some very, and, and, and it very, could, very well could be, Catherine, that the original flag was the flag with the griffin on it. Yes. Not the dragon. Exactly. And if, it, and if it was the flag of the griffin, you could see how easily it could be transformed from a griffin to a dragon, right? If it's they the look so of, similar. Yeah. If it's the flag of the griffin, why was that? Because it heralded the true line of the Welsh kings. And that's why it had to be converted. Well, the griffin name is a very important name. So if any of you have relatives out there, be pleased you're related to a griffin. Very good. Okay, well, we'll keep That's going. That's all on. I'm saying for now. <laughs> can't release our facts any more than that, Catherine. We have to, we have to prepare. I know. <laughs> okay, let's go to Brother Chris. Hey, hey, Chris, Listen. can I jump in one second ahead of you? Okay. Yeah. Oh, of course, John. Take okay. It, take it away. I want to, speaking of Moshe here, I want to read from uh, Jasher 68, the first verse. And it was said at that time that Ruach Elohim was upon Miriam, the daughter of Amram, the sister of Eharon, and she went forth prophesying about the house. Behold, a son will be born unto us from my father and mother this time, and he will save Yasharel from the hands of Mitzrayim. I just thought I'd read that. I think that's very interesting. And then Moshe, uh, we also have the uh, uh, testimony about what Yahusha would save his people, right? So. I just wanted to throw that out there in the discussion of Moshe. That was beautiful. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, Chris, don't, yes, let, John, don't, don't let John interrupt you. I love it when he interrupts me. Okay, so, so the Haftorah, Haftorah, Ezekiel, uh, now that we're on um, Mitzrayim, and I think, Doc, what you just said, or what you said earlier on, Mitzrayim hasn't gone away. Mitzrayim is here. Um, Mitzrayim morphed into Babel, which, you know, we can, we can get the, the Daniel's, Daniel's vision of the statue, right? Yeah. So it goes all the way down to Rome or to, to yeah, to Roma. And um, very interesting thing that I, I didn't know. I mean, obviously, you 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 would have known it, but other and other people would have known it. But that the German flag is taken from the colors of Rome. I didn't know that. I only read that this week, so that's interesting. Uh, the red, the red, yellow, and black. Um, so anyway, it's uh, in the half Torah, Yeskel uh, uh, twenty nine verse two. Son of Adam, set your face against Pharaoh, the king of Mitzrayim. Prophesy against him and against all Mitzrayim. Speak and say, thus says Adonai Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Mitzrayim, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the rivers, which has said, My river is my own, and I have made it for myself. But I will put hooks in your jaws, and I will cause the fish of your rivers to stick and 
unto your scales. And I will bring you out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish of the rivers shall stick unto your scales. And I will leave you thrown in the wilderness, and at all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall upon the open fields, and you shall not be brought together, nor gathered. I have given you as food for the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven. And I stop there. It's very interesting what you said earlier on, though, you know, because you were making like a joke, right? Well, he didn't turn him into a fish, did he? You know, <laughs> remember when you were talking about uh, the, the 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 staff, Moses' staff, right? Right. He didn't turn right. him into, didn't turn him into an orca, did he? But it's interesting here that he says, "Well, now he 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 hooks." this Mitzrayim by the jaw and Mitzrayim's fish stick to his scales which, ma which made me think obviously about what Yahusha says, you'll become fishes of men. Well, what does Mitzrayim become? Fishes of men. Fishes of evildoers. Fishes. So in other words, you getting stuck to the scales of Mitzrayim and there's no way out for you. You will be exposed. You cannot break free from this bondage that you have bonded yourself to Mitzrayim because the lies, because of the deceit, because of the um, all the money that has come your way. And that's, that, I think, maybe is starting to happen now because with this great awakening of knowledge, people are starting to realize, man, Look at these guys. That, like what you've just said about Obama and about Bushes and about all these people, this information is there. Follow the money. It's always been like that. Follow the money and you'll see who are the culprits. Because money doesn't lie. Money is an inanimate, an inanimate thing. But, I mean, it's like I've said before. The, the year ends in end of February, the money still keeps that date. Although Rome tried to change the, 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 the money has got a law of its own. Um, and, and, and that's why accounting is so precise. Because when you follow it, you see the transactions that, that, uh, that root out the evil. You, you can't hide that money trail. I mean, well, you can try, but I mean, it's it's a very difficult thing to hide that money trail. Yeah, so, yeah, you're right. Money doesn't lie. It, it has to be neutral. For money to be money, it has to be neutral. It has to be an inanimate thing of perfect neutrality. And this is one of the great faults of the United States. When we began to weaponize our currency, we destroyed the currency. As soon as you do that, it's like, why would I transact in this stuff? It's not neutral anymore. Like I've got this dollar bill, it keeps talking back to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's, you know, and that's, that's what I'm getting at, right, is that when you, as you say, you know, when you start giving somebody a printing press to print millions and millions of dollars, and when you are printing millions and millions of dollars yourself and putting them out into the marketplace, um, 
that's that's a weapon, and um, and and you're going to be caught out eventually. And if you're not going to be caught out, well, eventually it catches up to you because you know it's it's well. I don't want to give the analogy of taxes, but anyway, the thing is that um, that so so the, this was very interesting to me is that once you once you have sucked of Mitzrayim, it's impossible for you to break free from Mitzrayim, and you're going to be exposed. Now, this is a major point, Chris, that you're making here, because I tell you, when I look at the disease, and I think it's a mental disease of Nazism, you know, once you once you come down with this disease of Nazism, it's like, how do you get out of it? You know, I don't know that it's possible to repent. Now, I believe that the nations that are being exposed to Nazism right now in Europe, these nations are nonetheless going to recover. They're going to recover. The nation state itself will recover, and they'll recover back into the faith. They will remember their first love. But the Nazi leadership, on the other hand, how do you get rid of that Nazism out of their mindset? I mean, they're just, they, they've allowed themselves, you know, it's like a junkie. Once you try the heroin, you can't ever walk away from it. You know, you're never free of it. You may never use it again, but you're never free of that short circuit that happens when you use heroin. Same thing with Nazism. You undertake that mindset it doesn't go away. It's a, it's a mental disease that just completely controls the whole persona. And, uh, you know, and I think, I think when you're talking about Mitzrayim, it's the same kind of thing. Well, I want to get into having chimeras as Elohim. And I want to get into this worship of the obelisk cupola uh, the, and this arrangement. And, you know, what we see as really most of that stuff is what we would define as the foundation of occult practices. Right. Comes out of this Egyptian mindset, right? Right. Close to the third and fourth generation. The sins uh, of the Nazis flow to the third and fourth generation. Third they and fourth generation. Yeah. Important point. It should be criminalized for four generations. And, and you know, uh, coming to last week's conversation, I think it was, um, Rome hasn't gone away. The Germans won the war. We, we, we don't look at it like that. The Germans won the war. They own the, they own the they own United States through these guys, right? They've they've taken it over, they've usurped themselves into this position. So this whole facade of war, which was just created to kill people. Um, the outcome remains the same, you know, and, and it's and it's it's difficult and it's difficult to accept. It's it's like every every grain of one's body wants to deny it, wants to say no, 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 no. You know, the good guys won, but it's not so. The Reich is is very very well and uh, powerful. Um, okay, they are now cracking. That's for sure. I think. Uh, I think at the moment, um, you know, these things are, are are coming to the fore. Now, now the cracks are starting to appear and fast, fast and big. Um, 
but that's the sign of the times. You know? um, I, I just want to read a little bit further here in, in, in verse 5. It says, You shall not be brought together nor gathered. I have given you as food for the beasts of the field and for the fowls of the heavens. Well, you know, the fowls of the heavens, I mean, it's the, the Ruachoth, right? I mean, the, the beasts of the field. It's very interesting, you know, that, that, that we think, uh, you know, this, this prophecy, I mean, obviously, Mitzrayim was gone by this prophecy. Well, you know, the Mitzrayim that we know. Right. So, you know, obviously, who is he talking to? Well, I think Ezekiel is talking here. If you, if you look at what takes place during the time of Jeremiah, there is a new pharaoh that arises. Ptolemy. I think it was Ptolemy. Ptolemy might have been a little bit later. But you had a pharaoh that was rising that Zedekiah would go to and say, hey, look, if you ally with me, the, the two of us together can defeat Nebuchadnezzar. If we get together, we can defeat Nebuchadnezzar. He's got a big army, but the two of us together can do it. And, and the pharaoh agrees. Okay, Zedekiah, I'll be right in there with you until he sees Nebuchadnezzar's army. The instant he sees his army, it's like, I'm not doing this anymore. Well, Zedekiah is now hung out to dry because Zedekiah has betrayed Nebuchadnezzar. He's not paying tribute anymore. He's in his face. You know, I've got my army behind me. We're going to fight you. But then he doesn't have his army behind him anymore. And so Nebuchadnezzar not only conquers Jerusalem and kills Zedekiah, but he also goes on and conquers the, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so this is who Ezekiel is talking about. He's talking about this latter-day Pharaoh a pharaoh that's going to be completely destroyed. And now, and this prophecy all came true. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar just completely, you know, waxed the ground with him and imposed Babylon. And, and I'm not even sure, you know, I'm not even sure to what extent Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't like occupy. He went there, smashed them, left their dead all over the ground, and then left. And I think he exacted a tribute, but it, even that was after the fact. Hmm. So there wasn't anything, there was not much left of Egypt. So even when, when, when Jerusalem fell, you had this petition, and Jeremiah talks about it pretty extensively. Well, there was a group of people left in Israel that were like, let's go to Egypt. And Jeremiah's like, no, look, they took all of our leadership here. They took all our elite families, all the noble families and all that. They took them back to Babylon, but they left their houses. They left their vineyards. They left their olive groves. They left all of this stuff. Let's stay here and work it. And what happened? Civil war breaks out because... You're talking about, and this was, it's kind of an interesting story because it shows you that when people who don't know how to make money, even if you give them the money, they can't keep it. People, people who, do, who do not know how to run a farm, even if you give them a farm, they can't farm. They don't know how to do it. And, and you say, well, anybody can learn. Well, no, that's not the case at all. And this was living proof. These guys had all of this stuff here. They could not exercise the skill and the know-how to become stalwart stewards of that, that particular land. And so the conclusion is made after they had a couple of assassinations. Let's go to Egypt. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesies to him and says, look, you go to Egypt, you're going to die in Egypt. No, no. And what do they tell him? You know, when we worship Yah, bad things happen to us. But when we cook, you know, when we make wafers for the queen of heaven, Good things happen to us, right? That's the discussion. 
When we worship Yah, bad things happen to us. Look what happened to Jerusalem. Look what's happened to our whole country. But when we worship the Queen of Heaven, everything's nice. And our husbands know we're doing it, right? Enter enter the, the worship of the Virgin Mary. And so they did, in fact, leave for Egypt. And they did go up to the upper Nile. And they did build another temple. And they were killed to the last man. The temple was stood there, but they killed them to the last man. Only Jeremiah and, you know, Tiatefi and Baruch, is when they went to Egypt, they went to Egypt with that group, and then they were kicked out. It was like, was Zedekiah's daughter, you two, you two prophets, get out. They put them on a boat with no oars and no sail. There you go. You're out to sea. And they put them out to sea, and they were out to sea for a little while, and they were rescued by, quote, unquote, a Danite boat. They got on the Danite boat and sailed. And this, and the evidence of this whole story, by the way, is carved in stone as a hieroglyph on this place that they call the Tomb of Jeremiah in Ireland. So when you, when, and of course, they, then they, they now have it locked up because people are going in there, you know, and of course the tomb is ready to cave in now, you know. But when you, when you come up, so they have a gate there, but you can look inside and you can take a picture of the glyph that's carved on the stone right there. And it tells you the date. It gives a depiction in the heavens of a solar eclipse and all this that happened, which happened in 581 BC. So the temple destroyed in 586, five years later. Here's this story of five people living, leaving on a ship out of Panis, Egypt, traveling through the Mediterranean to the Gibraltar and then up into Ireland. And it's carved on the stone. So, I mean, you know, it's an incredible history. And then, of course, the book, uh, the book of Tefi, it's called the book of Tefi, describes it in detail about what happened. And so you see the Jeremiah and then Jeremiah, the prophecy in Jeremiah says, this Jerusalem, I am going to tear down. And then I'm going to replant in the wilderness. And Jeremiah does, in fact, replant Jerusalem in the wilderness. And this is the research we're doing through the ark. When he comes up, he, he landed in Northern Ireland. You would think, well, why not land in Cork, right? Well, they didn't because the ancient port was in Northern Ireland. So they come up to the northern northwestern corner of Ireland, and there's a path there called the Path of the Old Gray Man. And uh, his name was, um, what, Fade Olam. And he came with the Stone of Destiny, the, the, that well, they had an Irish name for that too, and the Harp of David. And some people believe that he came with the Ark of the Covenant. But they came into Ireland, and when he came, he came into Ireland with Tiatefi and Baruch, who they called Simon Breck. Simon Breck. But his name was his true name was Shimon Baruch. And they came into mm -hmm. Ireland. And when they came into Ireland, Tiatefi married the king, Haramon, and they reestablished uh, what was at that time the, the capital of Ireland, and they reestablished it in the name of the Torah and called it Tara. And called it Tara. And so from here, now we see, and this is the work that, that, that Catherine can attest to, and I think Sherry can attest to, and Eileen, we have been looking at the specific line of kings. And so we're looking at these line of kings saying, okay, can we identify these kings through this period? We can identify the kings now from Jeremiah forward to the last high king of Ireland, whose name was Edward the Bruce. His brother was Robert the Bruce. Who established Free Scotland, and I was at I was at his um, I was at his grave. You know, he's buried in an abbey in this town called Dunfermline, which is the former capital. It's just down the road from Scone, the ancient capital of Scotland. 
And it has Robert, King Robert the Bruce on the four corners of the tower over the abbey where he's buried, right? And he was the king that succeeded when William Wallace failed and was killed. Robert the Bruce succeeded in defeating Edward I down in, in uh, uh, near Norwich, or it was just south of York, and he established a free Scotland. Well, that line of kings proceeds from there too through the Stuarts until it's overthrown uh, by, uh, by the Tudors. And so we've got, so this is why, and, and we've, we've established, we've been able to establish a line between the high Irish kings and the Welsh kings, the high Irish kings and the Scotch kings. And so we're, we're developing a timeline now that is really starting to indicate the history that we currently have on the table right now is a big fat lie. And the, and the history that's coming out now. So when you see, when you talk about the woman being in the wilderness, the woman being in the wilderness, if the 1260 days are, which are discussed in, in Revelation 12, if a day is equal to a year, right? Then what are we talking about the 1260 years that have passed since 581 BC? Where did that put these kings? Where did this put this woman in the wilderness, you see? And what is the wilderness? What was the wilderness? And like I say, the kind of stuff, the kind of research, I'm not going to get too much more into it than that, but the kind of research we're finding right now is just for the purposes of our, of our discussion. There was a lot more shipping going on at the time of Jeremiah, even at the time of Solomon. There was shipping going on from North America at the time of Solomon. There was shipping right. going on from South America at the time of Solomon. Right. And it was reported to Solomon that it took three and a half years to go around the world on a ship. So, sure. You know, so these what kinds are, of... What are you... Sorry. What are your thoughts on shipping from Australia? Well, I'll tell you, shipping from Australia, it's, it's, uh, this is an interesting quandary. I can tell you that the way the situation is right now, Chris, what we're looking at right now is there is a passage that is open in the Arctic Ocean for about five months a year goes over the northern coast of Alaska and over and through northern Canada. That shipping that originates in, in the southeastern uh, Pacific, in the southeast, southwest Pacific, that shipping, by shipping through Alaska to Europe, shaves 13,000 miles off the trip to the Panama Canal. 13,000 hmm. miles. And so now we in Alaska, I mean, the kind of discussions we have up here now we're talking about, uh, we're talking about, first of all, we're talking about food independence. We want to become a net exporter of food uh, in the next seven years. We're talking about bringing in a black fiber cable to enhance our own private cloud. We're talking about establishing a digital cloud up here that because the big problems with the cloud is cooling it. That's why they have these clouds in refrigerator vans in the ground in Washington. We're going to be able to cool the cloud by putting pipes into glacier fed rivers. It's going to make it's just going to make it a piece of cake. So we 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 have advantages up here that are going to be really quite significant in terms of of what we're doing. And of course, we're trying to build the policies of international stature, dependent upon let your yay be your yay and your nay be your nay. So when we enter into an international status, we want to we want basically what we were where we're trying to position Alaska is to become the Switzerland of the world. 
Switzerland being a neutral country in Europe that was able to maintain its neutrality during the wars. We wanted Alaska to be a neutral country for the world where international conferences, Anchorage International Airport is the third busiest freight airport in the world. And the reason why is because people found out you can either carry freight or you can carry fuel, but you can't carry both. So as a consequence, when they cut their fuel back, then they could land at Anchorage, get refueled and carry all this freight. So we have FedEx, we have UPS, Amazon's moving up here now. We've got all these Chinese carriers, Korean carriers, Japanese carriers. All They're all flying four sevens through the Anchorage International Airport. It's an extremely busy freight airport. Similarly, we're going to put a port. We think the port is going to go in rather in Prudhoe rather than in Nome. There was talk about putting a billion-dollar port in Nome, but it'll probably be in Prudhoe. So when you're talking about shipping out of Australia, the whole shipping current, when, when you come, if you come across to India, if you're talking about South African traffic, right? You're talking about Australia to South Africa, moving the, moving the freight through the Indian Ocean is a whole different animal than yeah, moving the freight, uh, than having the freight come across the Pacific. But crossing the Pacific this way is expansive as compared to going this way up the Pacific and through of the Arctic Ocean to Europe, much, much quicker, much faster a route. Hmm. I would say, yeah, this- you know, I, I was, I was, look, this is a far fetched thing and it's for another discussion. But I was looking at these horizontal falls and I was wondering to myself, wasn't that maybe um, an ancient, mill because you know you put a wheel in there you've got so much power generated all the time and it's put um, it into what the horizontal falls of uh um, of west australia west southwest mm. australia or uh, no wait it's not southwest it's 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 north but anyway uh it's I mean, it's it's just a fascinating thing, and I and I wondered why it's so sparsely uh, populated, and I wondered if that is. I know it's rough terrain, but I wonder if it's also not designed that way so that people don't find out truth um, of of the area. Now, look, I mean, that's another discussion for another day. We'll have it. But, no, but um, it's it's a very good point, Chris, because when you talk about again, if you go back to this period of time when the oceans were three to four hundred feet lower. There's a whole subcontinent that emerges. Indonesia was not a set of islands. It was a subcontinent and probably directly attached to Australia. So this continent was much, much larger than what it is now. And so when you see it as a subcontinent, we ask yourself the question, how did all these animals get there? You know, they, they float over on boats. You know, the population of the, of the species that were there, it has to do with the fact that at one time the oceans were much lower. And it could be more than one time. The oceans may have been lower many times, depending on how many ice ages we've had and depending mm. on how large that ice cap was. So mm. uh, these kinds of things are really good questions, you know. And again, when we talk about like one of the things we're going to, well, I'm, I'm not going to share the surprise that we'll do it on Thursday. But um, yeah. there is a very interesting facility in Australia. It's up in the northwest corner of Australia. And it's yeah. a... It's a harp array shaped in the shape of the star of Israel, star of David. And that harp array that's there is very interesting because it draws a direct ley line right to Astana, the capital of uh, Kazakhstan, 
and also right to the nuclear power plant in Southern California. I mean, they're directly, they're perfect, perfect ley lines from this Star of Zion shaped harp apparatus in Northwestern Australia. If you yeah, look at and it. I think that's where the falls are. But, but anyway, it's a very interesting thing because, um, you know, the rock as well, if you look at that area, the rock is, is, is it's as if it's, it's cut out in blocks. And I was just, you know, it's it, it just fascinating. But anyway, Doc, that's, a, that's, that's anyway, I'm just surmising. I just thought. Uh, Younger Dryas. It's, yeah. Well, Chris, you should join our Ancient Days class. We talk about this stuff for days. And, <laughs> we, and we, we go through this in the Ancient Days class. We've been going through a lot of these kind of discussions. Trying to, and again, we, we're, we don't want to violate scripture in any respect. Okay. Scripture is the standard by which everything fails or succeeds. But what is what's what's showing up is we're discovering that um, you know the Beni Elohim. That's a big question. Who were these sons of Elohim? Who were they? And we know that we've got a record that talks about the fallen ones. And these fallen ones, th these were created before mankind. There was a class of being created before mankind. And they had problems. There was a rebellion in heaven. And that rebellion turned into something. And then when you look closely at who these watchers are, well, these, you know, when, uh, anyway, I won't get into it except to say that if you're interested in that kind of inquiry, you've got like minds over at the Ancient Days class. And we have been having, an, well, John, we've been having a good time over at Ancient Days or yay or nay. We have. Okay. There's a good testimony. Okay. So it's it's fantastic. It's I'm, I'm telling you, I'm learning so much in the class. It's blowing my mind. Anyway, thank you, Chris. Thanks, brother. And and by the way, you got to respond to my email. Will you do that? Yeah, I, I responded already. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll take a look at it. We'll see what we can get going here. Okay. Okay. Vern, how are you, brother? Excellent. I have a question, and uh, I was listening to Parable of the Vineyard, Alan. And Adam, his, Adam Fink. And uh, his tour portion that he did yesterday, I believe it was yesterday. Anyway, he, he read from a book that was talking about Zipporah and her father. I think his name was Ruel or something like that. Anyway, Ruel had set up that Zipporah could be married to the man that pulled this sapphire staff out of the ground. And many people, many men tried to do it, and none were able until Moses came along and pulled it out. Or Moshe. Anyway, so my question is could Moshe's rod have been sapphire? Well, now, when you talk about sapphire, thanks for bringing this up because it allows me to go to the whiteboard. <laughs> okay. So when we get to the whiteboard, we see a couple of things. So when we talk about the sapphire, we talk about this word here. Okay. Sapphire. Now, 
this word is actually a couple of words. Because on one hand, we can say, okay, sefer. Now, typically when you have two segals like this, the accent is here on the first syllable, sefer. Okay. But this can also be the word safar. Now, this word means to count, okay, to enumerate, to count. So, sefer is actually a numbered scroll. In other words, it's a scroll that has numbering in it. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, etc. Okay? Safar is to count. It's to enumerate. All right. Now, what about this word? What is this word? Right? Hirikyod. Sapphire. Now, this means to etch. So, it, to etch a numbered writing. To etch a numbered writing. Okay? So, when you, when you look in the Sefer, we talk about the stones that Moshe uh, gave to Yah, and the Yah wrote with his own fingers. Etch a numbered writing. So when you're talking about a sapphire, a rod, a rod of sapphire, we think, oh, that's a precious jewel. But it may not have been a precious jewel. It may have been an etched writing on, 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 the, on the staff. Okay? An etched writing, which would still constitute, there's Helen, would still constitute a sapphire rod. Okay, so, you know, so this is why when we talk about sapphire, I mean, you know, again, we think, and, and in fact, when you get later on, when you start talking about the precious stones that are in the fold or the, the stones that are on the, uh, uh, that are on the, the being in, in Ezekiel 28, that's a sapphire, that's dealing with the stone. But when you talk about the sapphire, you'll see they're spelled differently in the sapphire, sapphire, sapphire. Okay. But yeah, I mean, what writing was he quoting from? I'm not sure what the writing was. I don't remember uh, if that's... Little, I, I, I think it's in Jasha. In Jasha. Jasha 77. Um, from about 39. So let me get there. Yeah, it makes you wonder where they got this, the sword and the stone, stone story. That was brought up. Yeah. That's full brain. That's what? Uh, that story is kind of in the coal brain. Oh, it's in the coal brain. The, yes. the story of Moshe and the staff? No, the sword and the stone. The sword and the stone, yeah. Okay, and 77 verse what? 39. 39? 39. Okay, and let's see. Yeah, here it is. And behold, why he prayed, he looked opposite, and behold, the sapphire stick was placed in the ground. Now, you see the, the spelling of sapphire there? C-A-P-H-I-R-E. A sapphire stick was planted in the ground, which planted in the midst of the garden. He approached and took the stick and looked, and behold, the name of Yahweh Elohim Sebaot was engraved thereon. Now, you see what I was saying before about the idea that 
when you say a sapphire stick, we think that's a stone, right? But here it's very clear that the name was engraved on it and developed upon the stick. And he read it and stretched forth his hand and he plucked it like a forest tree from the thicket and the stick was in his hand. See, so when you're talking, when you're talking about a sapphire in this particular case, you're talking about something that has etching on it. It's etched. Now it could be it could be the stick was was stone, but probably not. Maybe a hardwood. Maybe this was maybe the stick was ironwood. You know, that's a stick indigenous to that area, ironwood. I don't know if you've ever tried to cut ironwood, but it'll go, it'll take your saw blade out. But anyway, but you see here, it says what's placed in the midst of the garden, a sapphire stick. And a sapphire imply not sapphire S-A-P-P-H-I-R-E, but rather sapphire C-A-P-H-I-R-E. Why? Because he approached the stick and behold, the name of Yahweh Elohim Sebaot was engraved on it. See? <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, Vern. Well, thanks for bringing that up. And tell Adam I said howdy if you if you're if you're in the chat room with him. That staff in uh, in England has does it have is it engraved? That's a good question, and that's that would it's be a very big... very engraved. It it, it but is, but it's all in Egyptian, sadly. Ah, interesting. Interesting. So they use they use Moshe's Egyptian name as the princess uh, a princess gave her. Yeah. Well, Catherine, I guess I'm going to Birmingham. I'm going. I'm going some. I'm going somewhere into England first before I before I head to go other parts. But uh, Birmingham has got to be it, you know. And, and of course, you know, Birmingham is always uh, an iffy deal, you know. They got the. the well, it's Birmingham. an hour away from me, probably half an hour away from Jessica. Not if you're walking. It's longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably be riding a bike. What I'm going to do is I'm going to okay. get one of those. I'm going to get a. I'm going to get a little motor scooter. You know, one of those little scooters, and ride that, and run that around. Okay. Okay. All right. Let me. Let me. We lost. We lost uh, Johnny here. Let me see if I can get Johnny back in here. Let me see if I can get Johnny back in. Thank you, Doctor Pigeon. Yes. The deverings that were written on the sapphire stones is it the same verbiage or is that different as well? Oh, it's the same verbiage, sapphire, the sapphire stones, the Deverim, the 10 Deverim that were written on there. And why do we call them sapphires? Because it's etched stone, etched stone. And that's why the word sapphire was used there. Okay, there's Johnny, you're back. Hey, Johnny, what's up? Yeah, boy, a great discussion today. Thank you so much, from, especially for the dissertation on uh, Jimmy Carter forward. That was really, really informative. Um, but actually my question, Catherine brought up an interesting point earlier and we were chatting back and forth a little bit, but she was mentioning the Griffins um, and the connection to Wales. And I, I, I just started thinking about the, the Griffins of Queen Califia on the ancient island of California and you know, whether that would have been a low lying um, counterfeit for Hasatan, you know, halfway around the world. So I know that's, I know that's kind of out there, but that's immediately where my mind went to. It's like, oh my gosh, I wonder if there's some kind of counterfeit connection. No, those symbols are extremely important. I mean, I'll give you an example. One of the things that we have discussed that we're finding in our research 
you're familiar with uh, the name Montezuma, mm-hmm. one of the head, one of the head of the Aztec people. Well, yeah. we're finding research that indicates that Montezuma was the grandson of Madoc, who was the Welsh sailor who got lost in North America in the 580s. Wow. That Montezuma was, in fact, Welsh. Well, isn't this fascinating? And so, you know, you can't, you know, when you see these kinds of symbols, these symbols mean something. If you see a flag somewhere, you see a symbol somewhere. Like, for instance, um, Gabriella put up the symbol for Finland. I don't know if Gabriella's still with us. I don't, I don't know if she is or not. I think she left us. I think she is late there in Finland. But um, she put up the symbol for Finland, and the symbol was a rampant lion on a silver plate on a blue mm-hmm. flag. Well, that rampant lion is a symbol of the house of Judah. And this actually has been the golden lion has been the golden rampant lion has been a symbol of Finland for as far back as you can remember, which tells you that the house of Judah in the line of Ferez has been present in Finland. See, those symbols matter. The red rampant lion facing the other way, the red rampant lion faces to the right, golden rampant lion faces to the left, the red rampant lion is also a symbol of Northern Ireland. What's it doing there? It's also in the Scottish flag. What's it doing there? Sephardi, it has a Sephardi origin. It has, it, it's referencing the sons of Zerach, the first twin of Judah. So, so don't let go of those symbols. Those symbols mean something. And so if you find, the, you find the Griffin where in Southern California? Yeah, when when California was, was still an island of its own, it goes back to the, the mythology of Queen Califia and, and her griffins, you know, her island was protected by giant griffins. And any any boat, sailing boat vessel that got near was attacked by these griffins. That's interesting because you know, California being an island, you can see very clear indication that the Sacramento Valley was at one time just a giant lake. Right. I mean, I mean, that's pretty clear. And so how much of how much of the island of California was an island? Was it just along the West Coast or what was it? I mean, I don't know. Anyway, well, thank you for that, Johnny. That's very good information. And we'll be looking more into that later on. Um, we can only do one research project at a time here. <laughs> right. And I, I had another question for you. It sounds like I, I really, you know, the Ancient of Days class. And now that I am a free woman and have more time, um, the classes in the Sefer Academy, can you join at any time or do you re-up in January or at September? Yeah, join up. Yeah, join join into the class. When you join the class, you can go back and watch old videos if you want. And we're going to continue. We're, right now in Ancient of Days, we're dealing with the antediluvian period. We haven't yet. We're dealing with really what happened in the Book of Enoch before the flood. And so we're going to be dealing with the parables. And the discussion is going to continue along the antediluvian period for some time. And then we're going to wrap up the class when we get to the Exodus. Once we get to the Exodus, then we, when we finish up the Book of Jubilees in Chapter Fifty, then we will finish up the Ancient Days, at least the first section of Ancient Days. Then we'll be barking. We'll be embarking on something else. We deal with the kings, and we'll be going from we'll be going from the Exodus to the destruction of Jerusalem, and what happens thereafter. That'll be Part Two of Ancient Days. And then from there, we're going to be looking at a history that is going to be absolutely uh, abnormal. 
because we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at some stuff that's going to be like, what, what are you trying to say here, Dr. P? Well, we're just going to take a look at the thousands of pages of documents that the ARC team has just put together. And we're going to be looking at a history from 586 BC. That's going to take us up to the time of Mashiach and to his, you know, birth, uh, his death, his resurrection and ascension and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That'll be ancient days, part three. And that is going to be absolutely wild. You might, you better get yourself a, a set of, uh, you know, rubber boots because it's going to get deep in a hurry. And, you know, and then you can always hang out at the dig. John's got a couple of extra shovels. Right. I got a pickaxe. You never know what we're going to find. Actually, we're going to be dealing with something this week that's going to be like, what? And hopefully John Hallam will join us and we're going to have some uh, some more information that'll be over the top. But um, yeah, we're, we're digging in and finding some stuff that, you know, we're outside the regiment, right? You know, think outside the box. Well, we think outside the regiment. We're just, we're like, no, there ain't no box where we're concerned. We're just kind of wandering aimlessly over the surface of the earth. <laughs> what, what yeah, last Thursday's dig on the on the priest was exceptional. I've already listened to it like three times. So <laughs> yeah, that was you know, yeah. Again, Malcolm David came to the table with some great research on that one, and uh, yeah. it 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 just it it just helps. All right, well, thanks, Johnny. Appreciate that. Okay, let's go to Live's iPhone. Live, are you live? Okay. All right. Well, we've, we've listened to the sound of silence. Listen to the sound. Oh, of sorry. Silence. Sorry. Oh, there you go. Sorry. I was saying you did, it was a great presentation on the Torah portion today. And I think well, you, you outdid yourself, you know, with the stuff about, you know, current history. And, um, anyways, I have like a three part kind of inquiry. And the first part is, what is Yah's purpose? Secondly, he's reconciling to, and thirdly, clarification of what it means, the new man. Hmm. Oh, you mean the idea of one new man and all that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think Yah's purpose, I think when you, when you look at this, we kind of talked about it last night. And on one hand, it's a kind of difficult because when you see the passage, Shema Yasharer, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Well, we can look at that and say, well, politically, this means that Yah is one. But it Absolutely. also means, but it also means Yah alone. And when you think about this, you have this creator who occupies an infinite number of dimensions infinitely. There is, you know, there is none like you. There is no one like Yah. There is no other. There is no competing entity. There is Yah and Yah alone. But what does Yah like say? That. What does Yah like say that. in Genesis? He says, it is not good for man to be alone. Mm -hmm. And so when, when you look at Yah's creation, he said to himself, okay, well, look, I'm not going to be alone forever. And so as a consequence, the, the, the action of Yah to create mankind was an act of love. It was always an act of love. And, but the difficulty about love is love has to be an election. 
you know, you can't go to your spouse and say, I demand you love me. What you're, what you're going to get is love. You might get obedience, but you're not getting love because love has to be an election. So in order for love to be an election, you have to be able to have the perfect ability to not love. You have to have the ability to say, no, forget it. I'm rejecting you. And so under these circumstances, Yah creates mankind and he creates us with this ability to either accept or reject. Now, Yah's prayer is that all of us would come to recognize him and to love him and to say, you are Yah, our creator, our father. We love you. But that's not what happened with mankind. Mankind instead ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and death came into the world. And this departure took place and all of these, these heartaches that have come into mankind. So Yah's purpose has been to reconcile the error of mankind. That's always been his purpose. That Yah demonstrates his love for us, that Mashiach died for us while we were yet still his enemies. This is an extremely important point about what happens in, in Yah's, when you ask what is Yah's purpose, what is Yah's reconciliation is to reconcile himself to mankind so that there would be nothing standing in the way between man reconciling himself to the Father. And there is nothing standing in the way. But the death of Mashiach was so perfect and the blood sacrifice so accurate that he and he reconciled the heavens, he reconciled the transgression of the sin of Adam perfectly. And yet, not, notwithstanding that reconciliation, the option to reject Yah still remains present. The, uh, the, the ability to accept or reject is still here. Even though he chooses us first? Even though what? Even though he chooses us first. Oh, yeah. Well, no question. But the thing is, is that, and I know we can talk about, you know, predestination, but the thing is, when you're talking about predestination, my opinion about predestination is that it's really none of our business. The fact that Yah knows who is going to come to him and who isn't, it's mm -hmm. not something we know. It's, we don't know that. He knows it, but we don't. So it's really not our business. So the fact that Yah knows it, more power to him. It's not our business. We don't know. And so we're, we come through this life saying we're going to elect, we're not going to elect, but he calls us with grace. You know, I knock and if you open the door to me, then I will come in and dine with you, you know? And so this, this is what I think is Yah's uh, reconciliation. I think he's reconciled us mostly, but he hasn't reconciled the earth yet. He's reconciled the heavens, but he hasn't reconciled the earth yet. And that's what's coming with the return of Mashiach. He will reconcile the earth. And, 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 and I, is, help me out if it's in Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about two reconciling one with another, and that it's likened unto almost an appearance of Yah. Um, hold on. And what, are you, what are you talking about in Galatians? Say that again in Galatians 5. I don't, I don't, I don't remember if it's exactly in Galatians. It just comes to my mind that it's Galatians chapter 5, but when, when he talks about when two, when two reconcile, that it's likened unto an, ap a, a, an appearance of him. That reconciliation is a, like, a, like I guess, a, a thing, a force 
that, you know, uh, shows that, that reveals Yah. Yeah. And all the reason I bring that up is because, you know, when it says Yah's purpose is to reconcile the two uh, into a new man, I'm always, I, I've been putting a lot of parallels together what the two being reconciled means. Is it, you know, could it be Abraham's, you know, I, kids? They sent one away and they're going to be reconciled. Uh, can it be, you know, the king, the, the, the Yasharel kingdom that's not that's not reconciled right now um and is it is you know who who is the two that he's reconciles into being the one new man well if you're looking at galatians you're talking about the uncircumcised and the circumcised and i think that's one way of putting it and i think the better way to understand it is that uh the reconciliation you know, there are many people, and of course, you know, the, the official organizations of the Messianic movement, they disagree with the idea that there's two kingdoms. But Isaiah refers to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jeremiah refers to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in particular, Ezekiel is going to tell you specifically who this reconciliation is going to be. Because he's, he tells us, in chapter 37, I believe it is, he's going to tell us who this is going to be. He says, now again, we're it's very interesting that you bring this up because we were just talking about this sapphire stick engraved with the name Yahweh Sebaot Elohim. Okay. But in 37 verse 18, it says, when the children of your people shall speak unto you, saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? Say unto them, thus says Adonai Yahweh, Behold, I will take the stick of Yosef, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Yasharel, his fellows, and will put them even with the stick of Yehuda, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks whereon you write shall be in your hand before their eyes, and saying to them, Thus says Adonai Yahweh, Behold, I will take the children of Yasharel from among the heathen, wherever they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Yasharel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them all out of their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so that they shall be my people, and I will be their Elohim. So this is the this is the grouping that is coming back together. It is the house of Yosef and the tribes of Yasharel with him, and the house of Judah and the tribes of Yasharel with him. So it's going to be a very interesting reconciliation because I believe that the tribes have been spread all over the world. That in fact the tribes are found in every tongue, every nation, every language, and uh, so it's going to be a very interesting reconciliation. And. He even goes on to say, he says, and David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and guard my statutes and do them. Wow. Big teaching, you know. The statutes being the Torah? Yeah, the statutes. Well, the statutes are one part of the Torah. And you have to keep in mind that when we talk about the Torah, we're talking about all of Scripture. 
I'm not talking about just Moshe's Torah, because okay. Torah means Torah, Torah means instruction, mm -hmm. and the instruction all of Scripture is good for instruction. So it's not just the not just Moshe's Torah, but walk in my judgments, and Yah's judgments are perfect, right? Guard my statutes, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Yaakov, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. They shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever, which is interesting. Moreover, I will cut a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, I will be their Elohim. They shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Yasharel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. So, so in, a, in a summary of 10 words or less, how would I answer somebody if they asked me, what is Yah's purpose? What is Yah's purpose? Yah's purpose is to reconcile himself to his, to his children, to his okay. creation. To reconcile okay. his children to him. Okay. Hmm. Dr. P, is well, that why the Lord said um, nobody comes to the Father except through me? Yeah. Well, when you're talking about when you're talking about Mashiach saying no one comes to the Father except through me, you have to recognize recognize that there was no reconciliation without the blood of Mashiach. That mankind was condemned. Mankind was condemned just like the just like the fallen watchers, condemned to no salvation until the blood of Mashiach, when but, that but reconciliation about, occurred. But what about Abraham being reconciled by grace? Well, they say that 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 Abraham believed and was therefore accounted unto him as righteousness. Mm -hmm. but this but but this does not necessarily mean that Abraham had a place in that had had a place in eternity. The eternity that was expressed, the reconciliation that was expressed in Mashiach is a reconciliation that goes all the way back to the beginning of time and all the way forward to the end of time. Mm. It's a reconciliation that was contemplated from before Abraham was born. It's contemplated in the name Yahweh. That's why there's a nail in the name Yahweh. That's why there's an out, that's why there's two Aleph Tavs in Genesis 1. Because Mashiach was contemplated from the very beginning. In fact, if you look at Genesis 1, you'll see that the first time, remember that in Revelation, the culmination of the book, we have this expression, I am the Aleph and the Tav. And then when we look at Genesis 1, Genesis 1, here, let me just pop it open here and I'll show you what I'm, what I'm talking about. When we look at Genesis 1, 1, the very first verse in scripture, we see that in this very first verse that we have this Aleph Tav right here. And we have the Aleph Tav again right here. Now, this is in position four. This is in position six. This forecasts in the seven days of, of Yah's whole creation, the 7,000 years, the epoch that we're currently in, that Mashiach would be here twice, once at the culmination of 4,000 years, and again at the culmination of 6,000 years. When you look at this one, you see that we have an Aleph Tav here, 
the very first one, this Aleph Tav is set forth here. Okay, great. I am the Aleph and the Tav. Now, as a prefix, this means I will. This means you shall. I will, you shall. The Aleph Tav, this is the authority of Yah. This is his salvation, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Then this one appears, but this one appears differently because it has a Vav in front of it. Now, the Vav is a prefix, which means and, right? And. So this is a prefix meaning and, but it's very interesting because this Vav here, the second time that the Aleph Tav appears, it's marked with a nail. This gives you an indication that in Genesis 1.1, Yah knew that Mashiach would come, the word would be made flesh, as the Aleph Tav, the authority and the salvation. But in his second, second appearance, his glorified body is marked with the scar of a nail. You can see that right here in Genesis 1. So here is the here is the bob, the mark of the nail, on the Aleph Tav. Now, it's also interesting when you look at the word oat. Oat is a word that's derived from the Aleph Tav. But instead of the nail preceding it, the, the nail is found here. The bob is found here. And this means what? Sign. The sign of the coming of the Son of Man. Again, an Aleph Tav divided by a nail. Okay. So this is why this contemplation of Mashiach is contemplated from the very beginning. From the very, very beginning, Mashiach's coming twice is contemplated right in Genesis 1.1. And that the plan of salvation to reconcile Adam, to reconcile Abraham, to reconcile Yaakov, to reconcile Noah, to reconcile Hanok, to reconcile Yitzhak, all of these things would happen with the death of Mashiach. His blood contemplated in Leviticus 17.11, right? The soul of the nephesh is in the blood. He and I have given it to you upon the altar that his blood in you, your soul, is your salvation, is your atonement. Very important aspect to this particular phrase. So we see that the idea of uh, Abraham being reconciled, like people ask the question, are the, are the 22 patriarchs before Yasharel in heaven? Jubilees answers the question. There were 22 patriarchs, just as there were 22 kinds of work in creation. If you go back and you look at creation narrative, in Genesis 1, you'll find there were 22 works that were accomplished in creation. There were 22 patriarchs. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. All of this is told to us in the book of Jubilees that the reconciliation of these patriarchs is made perfect in Mashiach. Okay. Jim, Meyer, have you got something? Oh, excuse me. Yeah, go ahead, David. You want to add something to that? Go ahead, brother. Uh, <clears throat> what, what I see is that uh, it's written that if everything that you would have said was written, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to code. Well, there you go. Uh, the, the, the witnesses, that the three witnesses that he gave us, is the Tanakh. And the Tanakh, if it doesn't witness in the Tanakh, then we don't have any guideline. So the three witnesses have to be witnessed through the Tanakh 
but then you got to have a good revelation of the Tanakh because it's been handled. So that has to have his voice in it. But your the responsibility of the gift that he's given you is to bring the writings uh, that were hidden to light. Now, he doesn't want any of you in it. It wants all of him. Mm, and so amen. I really, I really, I really uh, am going to watch that manifest. And I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> well, you're not the first because person who said that, David. I'll tell you what. You're not the first person who said that. And all I can tell you is, is that, look, Yah called me to this and I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, I could say I, I could have disobeyed and said, forget it. I'm not going to go do this. I'm going to go buy myself a BMW and uh, spend my time in the beach in Cabo. I could have done that, but I didn't do that. Yah called us to do this work. And so that's what we do. And we suffer the slings and arrows for every bit of it. And we try to keep it as we try to keep the text as pure as we can keep it as little as us as possible. That's why it's not a study. It's a responsibility. Right. It's a responsibility, it's a little... Stephen, and he's going to handle it. He's going to handle it, and he's going to handle you doing it. And I think it's awesome to watch, and I wouldn't want to get crosswise with it or you. <laughs> so, shalom, <Yeah>. brother. <laughs> okay, hallelujah. I appreciate that. Thanks, David. <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep your shalom with me. All right. Let's go to Jim. Jim, where are you, brother? How are you doing, Dr. P? Good. Uh, quick question. Actually, I have two questions, but uh, uh, you've probably talked about it before and I've missed it. But is is by chance and uh, when what was it day one, he said, let there be light. Is that light perhaps Mashiach? Uh, it's very possible. I mean, when you talk about the let there be light, we know we know what it isn't. It's not the light of the sun. Right. The sun wasn't created then. But it could be the principle of light that the sun operates. It could be photons, right? It could be something like this. Okay. But 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 when you talk about when we look at these words in in Genesis, we think we know what they say, right? This is yeah. the first time you're going to see this word, yeah. He or it says, oh, it's or uh, light. Is it? How do you know that? How do you know that Eretz means earth? How do you know that? How do you know that Shemaim means the heavens? And how do you know that? Uh, well, we think that's what it means. We think that we think that's what it means. Well, yeah. But when you talk about the or, you know, when you talk about Yahi or, is it possible that this is Mashiach? And, and I you know, see here, this is why I don't think it is. Well, I mean, it could be because, okay, you guys want to get into some really hardcore Genesis here. All right, let's do it. Okay. So here we're going to get into this phrase, which is found. Okay, it's found right here. Okay. Now, this phrase is Vayamer Elohim, and then spoke Elohim. And we have this phrase, it's in two sections. Okay. Yahi or, Ve Yahi or. Now, this is translated as let there be light, and there was light. But in the Hebrew, Yahi or, Ve and. Yahi or, Yahi or, Yahi or. What does that mean? Now, when you when you try to read this in Strong's, Strong's will tell you, oh, well, 1961, that's not Yahi, that's Hayah. Right? Hayah. 
He, Yod, He. Well, no, it isn't. It's Yod, He, Yod, Yod. Well, we, we're telling you it's He, Yod, He. Well, it says Yod, He, Yod. But we tell you it's He, Yod, He. Sorry, we have identified this word separately in the new lexicon as a sapphire number, Yahi. And this is where you first see the, the name Yah. And interesting that you see the name Yahi going forward and backward. You see that? Yahi going forward and backward. Now, you see the Vav there. The Vav, once again, indication of this sign of Mashiach is going to be accompanying the next Yahi, right? So really what this means is, is my essence, my I amness is light. And my I amness is light. Or you could say my I amness was light and my I amness is light. Or my I amness was light and my I amness will be light. But it's all contained in this kind of phrase. So, so the interpreters say, let there be light and there was light. You know, can we please get King James permission to allow there to be light? King James, let there be light. Okay, I, I'll allow it. I'll allow Yah to make light. Now, I mean, the, you know, the phrase is Yaki or. My essence is light. And my essence is light. So to, if you think that this is Mashiach, you might be thinking to yourself, well, then Mashiach is a created being created by Yah. But that's not the case at all. His essence is in this light. You see, it's yeah. this is not it's not a question of being, of it being created. It's a question of it being there. OK, beautiful. What's, what's the other question you had for me? The other one is um, we know that the life is in the blood. And, and then I started doing word search uh, in, in bone for, for, for bones throughout the Bible, uh, because we know that the blood is created in the marrow of the bone. And we know Mashiach had no bone broken. We, we know that uh, Joseph, Joseph's bones were taken. There's just a lot of stories about the bones. And we also know that the pagans, you know, skull and bones, and there's something going on there. And I was wondering if you had studied that at all. And the answer is not yet, but I appreciate okay. the feed and I will look into that. So with that, Jim, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up. It's time to go. So okay. I want to thank everybody for a fantastic Shabbat meeting. Thank you, Jim, for participating. I really appreciate it, brother. I will take a look at that at your issue. And I want to thank everybody else who's contributed today. And I want to thank all you guys for being part of this group. Even if you've never spoken here, I just want you to know that you are a blessing to this fellowship and that this is a fellowship of love between the brothers and the sisters. May we all lift each other up this upcoming week. Hear our prayer, Lift us up now, cover us, carry us. Be our forward guard and our rear guard as we look upon you, Yah. May you cover us with your wings. Bless us in kind. And we look to you for another beautiful week in Shalom. Thank you, Father. In the name of Yasha. Amen. Amen. Okay, guys, we will see you next week. Shalom. 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 Shalom.